the craziest thing happened. And this is actually when I knew that like, no matter what else happened in the movie, the Ranger part of it at least was going to be locked down. Hartnett is a legitimate athlete, first of all. He's out maneuvering everybody. In this episode, we share an amazing session with our friend Tom Amenta, a former Army Ranger who served in Afghanistan and has an incredible story about where life has taken him outside of his military career. From the startup of a successful patriotic clothing company, assisting with Hollywood actors in the 2001 film Black Hawk Down, and much more. This is his story. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. We know you have a shit ton to tell us. Um, and we're going to try and keep you on track and keep ourselves on track. So there's a lot of questions we're going to have. We're going to make this as entertaining right. as possible. Um, but yeah, so I know that you joined around 9-11, correct? When you joined the military? I actually... I actually joined uh, on April 7th, 1999, which was my 18th birthday. How to piss your parents off in one master stroke the minute you become an adult, leave the night before to go enlist in the military when they <laughs> begged you not to do it. <laughs> Why did I think you were a 9-11 guy? Well, so because I was I mean, I was in when 9-11 happened. So a lot of the sort of age of either I signed up right after 9-11 or you were enlisted just before 9-11 the way that I was, we all kind of got to the battlefield more or less at the same time. Gotcha. So yeah. that that's part of it. And then in one of those really sick, uh, the gods decided to screw with me, the gods of war, my 19th birthday, so my 18th I enlisted, my 19th birthday, April 7th, 2000, I got to 2nd Ranger Battalion. Nice. So... And, and so as, as Dan will tell you, having also been in that fine, fine institution, the day you get there is the day that you get lit up like an absolute Christmas tree, right? Like you just get to do all the really fun, prove that you don't suck mm -hmm. stuff. And uh, I'll leave I'll leave it at that in case you know the IG's listening <laughs> and there's a statute of limitations on that. But uh, so they're about just wrapping up. I really think to get us like to go do all the other things we need to do instead of pushups and stuff. And someone looks at my ID and notices it's my birthday, right? So the tab spec for mafia, uh, all of them, it goes from like the two or three that are going to be in my squad to every tab spec for and every team leader in the entire platoon. And now they're lighting me and the other two new guys up. And one of them sticks a bottle of maker's mark. He's just opened it right under my nose and is making me do push ups, saying, thanks for my presence. Happy birthday. <laughs> and. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> you've got to understand, I grew up as a super, super strict fundamentalist Christian kid. I didn't drink in high school. This is the first time I've ever really smelled whiskey like that. I'm trying not to throw up and look like a complete and total wuss, right? And it's my 19th birthday, and I'm just dead to the world. Like, another two hours later, like, they finally uh, let up on it. And they're like, okay, the kid's had enough, and he didn't quit. But that was my that was my 19th birthday, too. So That's awesome. <laughs> well, if it so makes you feel... That's my in Afghanistan. If it makes you feel any better, I turned 18 while in RIP, and they found that out. So What is what is RIP? RIP is the Ranger Indoctrination Program. So, okay. like, it's Ranger Selection, more or less. And uh, yeah, they they found out that I turned 18, and I got lit up, and everybody else got to give me presents by doing push-ups on my birthday. 
Oh, man. Look, you two rangers are going to go at it. So I'm going to be the civilian and try and like lead people and be like, what is that? <laughs> what? Uh, speaking of which, Tom, when I was over there, I noticed that obviously when we took some photos of you for the book coming up, I noticed mm -hmm. that you have the tan beret and the black beret. Um, can yes. you talk about what the difference of those is and why it was such a decision to change the color of the berets in the ranger program? Oh, man. So that wasn't made by the 75th Ranger Regiment, Dan and I's old unit. That was made by General Eric Shinseki. And this might sound a little bitter to those of you listening, but I promise you anyone who was around the military at that time can validate what I'm about to say. So Shinseki, when he was a lieutenant, worked at the National Training Center. Mm -hmm. And he was part of an armor unit. And their job was to replicate Russian forces. Well, in Russia, the tankers wear black berets, which is what the old color of the 75th Ranger Regiment was. And so he thought he was going to be jizz, gee whiz, bang, star spangled awesome and got all of his guys black berets and made him kind of look Russian. And the one spot I don't know for sure in the story, either someone from the Ranger Regiment saw it or just someone at NTC saw it and said, that's the Ranger Regiment's beret. Take them off. You can't have them. They no, Hell no. Mm. The, that's a special operations unit thing. So he gets all the way to the head of U.S. military forces in the Army, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he announces, okay, through uh, a civilian engagement with the Association of the United States Army, okay, with no prior announcement to Special Operations Command or Regimental Command or anything, that he is going to change the entire the the headgear of the entire United States army to the black beret because he was that much of a little tiny bitter bitch. Like <laughs> that's the whole story. For real. <laughs> no, that's, that's the story. And so everyone, I mean, like to this day, if you ask anyone who is my generation or, you know, Oh four, when it happened, no one likes berets, man. Like that's mm -hmm. the dirty little secret. No one really likes to wear it. it's wool. It's hot. I mean, especially it's when, it's, cap. when you're down in, Georgia, like I was mm -hmm. in the middle of the summer, it's brutal. And especially because it was black. I mean, you just would like pour sweat the minute you put that, that thing touched the top of your head. And so the regiment was like, all right, well, we're changing our beret. And so we changed it to tan, which it has been since 2004. So I just happened to be one of the guys, one of the 2,300 dudes or so that was in the Ranger regiment at the time and got to go from black to tan. So, so like what Dan has the, right up there. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So that was how, um, that's just how I did it. And, uh, I just happened to be there, right. You know, right place, right time, um, uh, on that one. So that's how we did those. It's, it's funny. Cause I joined three years later and there was still, or I got to Ranger regiment three years later and there was still so much animosity towards that decision years later. Oh yeah. And it's still talked about well, today, like on, you know, anybody you talk to within regiment around that time. So I'll tell you a really fun story, um, just because this is fun and why not? I already spilled the tea on Shinseki. Uh, the medium combat brigade, which is something it, for those of you who are listening, it's it's a sort of instead of it's not a heavy armor and it's not a light infantry, but they use the strikers all the time. And Shinseki, that was also Shinseki's baby. And he wanted that to replace the 75th Ranger Regiment. He hated the Ranger Regiment. Part of the reason that Rangers did not really uh, 
contribute to Operation Desert Storm in 1991 and 1990 was because him and Schwarzkopf were not a big fan of special operations units. They liked conventional forces. So Shinseki handpicked, he handpicked all the officers and the senior enlisted guys for the first uh, battalion for the striker brigade. Like he stacked it. And then to assess its fitness and test it at Camp Rylea, Oregon, which Dan can tell you is a National Guard training center that the Ranger Regiment and uh, First Special Forces Group and a lot of other people used to train up in the Pacific Northwest, he sent everybody there. Mm. He's like, Rangers and Medium Brigade, you're going force on force, and we're going to see how this works out. And we were actually also using sim munitions, which now is very common, but at the time, they're these little tiny paintballs that come out of your M4. Um, at the time, those were rare, especially the conventional forces. Like that was kind of a special operations only tool. Mm-hmm. But everyone had sims. <laughs> well, <laughs> because the because the way that Shinseki did it, he uh, or his influence on it, he left the rules a little open. And we were flying in on helicopters from Fort Lewis, and we were going to assault the town. So they got to defend. Which, by the way, the defense is always a lot easier, especially in an urban environment, than being on the offensive. Like if you're on the offensive. They say it's supposed to take three of you to one of them. And this was an equal man-to-man fight, okay? This is designed for us to get our ass kicked. Like, everything was designed for the Rangers to lose. So Shinseki can say, screw you guys, I don't like it. Well, and to this day, I don't know how this happened. We decided we were going to bring CS grenades and CS gas. And our oh, opening geez. thrust was going to be CS. We were going in in pro masks. Now, this is really important because you have to have Secretary of Defense authorization to use CS, training or real world. Like, this is a big deal. It's considered a chemical munition. The medium brigade never got the memo. They didn't even have the pro masks with them. Oh, shit. (laughs) So it was an easy victory. Oh, dude. So, I mean, we literally, the the whole, uh, like, in um, Gladiator, when everyone gets online and, like, they, like, ready loose we literally got everyone online we had all the you know the support by fire position everything all the 203s had cs in them uh anyone who had any level of like competitive baseball arm whatever we're all up there and we all have the grenades and it literally was like from our position in bravo company it was like a ready loose and we just unload the cs in the town and we start hearing because we're we did it mostly because we're like our fitness is better than theirs we're better trained so they're going to panic in their pro mask and that's going to be our advantage. Like mm-hmm. we really thought that because we knew how to breathe in them, which it's a skill and you got to practice it. Like that's how we thought we were going to get over on them and try and even the odds. All of a sudden we start hearing the, <coughs> oh, oh my God, it <laughs> people freaking out. We're like, what the fuck? Like, I mean, we really thought they were going to be masked up because who the fuck just lets themselves get tear gassed unless yeah. it's basic training and they force you to do it when they pull your mask off. It was it was a slaughter. I mean, it was it was <laughs> one of the most fun missions I've ever had in my life because these guys just weren't ready. And at the end of it, a bunch of them climbed up into an attic in the urban training center and they're shooting down, which is always dangerous. And we're like, listen, we actually stopped because we just didn't maul on these guys. We're like, listen, here's the deal. You guys can come down, right? And And it's over, right? Just surrender. Or we're throwing the CS up and we're coming after you. We've got more grenades. Oh, man. And it's the F you, like, whatever. And, like, literally, we're all like. (laughs) 
And and then we're just waiting. I mean, literally, we're just sitting. I mean, we're just sitting there like, Dan, you know this, like everyone with their like gangster cool guy pose because we're just waiting. <laughs> Smoke them out. They fall out. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. <laughs> the whole time, just smoking them. That's awesome. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, needless to, needless to say, the Media Brigade did not replace the 75th Ranger Regiment in uh, in uh, 2000. <laughs> <laughs> Dan kind of brought up a good point earlier and you were talking about how the news media confuses, uh, what is it? Like army Rangers with oh, yeah. special operations Rangers. Yeah. This is a hot, what is that a hot versus- topic. What is, is that a all hot about? topic right yeah. now? Uh, oh. Tom, I'll, I'll let, I'll let you take this. No, nah, no, nah, dude, I've already been, I've already been yucking it up too much. You, you go for it and I'll provide the support by fire. All right. Well, without <laughs> like, we don't need to call without it making it too too political because I don't know why this is becoming such a political thing right now. It's kind of frustrating and annoying. I guess everything you talk about in the news is going to be political, but mm-hmm. yeah. there's a very clear difference. Like people people will say that they're Army Rangers, but um, there's a difference between being Ranger qualified and, in my perspective, being an Army Ranger. Being Ranger yeah. qualified means that you attended a Ranger school and that you earned your your Ranger tab. Being an Army Ranger means that you worked in special operations with the 75th Ranger Regiment mm. and you earned in today's age the Tambray or in Tom's old age, the Black Beret. Thanks, buddy. Gotcha. So that's <laughs> that's the very clear difference. And like there's a senator or congressman right now getting kind of hammered in the media because he basically said that he was a uh, Army Ranger and everybody's been like, nope, that's wrong. That's not exactly accurate. Yeah. Interesting. So, so what's a proper way I, I, of saying it then? So the, I mean, the proper way, if you just have your Ranger tabs, Ranger qualified. Okay. Yeah. And the Senator, the Senator's Tom Cotton. And I'll take a step back for me personally, because this is one of those things that different guys have different opinions. First of all, only less than a third of the guys that and girls that start Ranger school graduate. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's arguably the hardest course in the military. Um, you know, except for maybe EOD school, like to, to graduate from ranger school is a tremendous accomplishment and should be treated as such. So if someone says they're a ranger and they're only ranger qualified, as long as they're not trying to like puff themselves up or talk Mm -hmm. shit about somebody else, usually I just let it go, man. It's like, it's hard, man. Like not everyone can do it. I, you know, matter respect if you can get through it. The problem that I, that a lot of people had with Senator Tom Cotton, who's been saying it is, He's not only said that he's an army ranger, but he says he's a combat ranger. Oh, nah, dude. The only people who are combat rangers are dudes who wore tan berets and went overseas like Dan and I did. Like yeah. that's that for me is a hard no. And he's also used his ranger tab to try and further his political career and further his political ambition, which that to me is completely dishonest and completely disingenuous. Mm-hmm. It's, I have I have all the respect in the world for him or anyone else who can get their black and gold ranger tab. That is a hard thing to do. And it is a worthy accomplishment to celebrate. But when you start trying to take the, the baseline Ranger qualification and try and present yourself like a guy who was in the Ranger Regiment, especially a guy who went overseas right. and fought and did what we did, conventional forces didn't do what we did, right? At, at, any, at any real stage of the game, unless they got into a very, very bad situation they probably shouldn't have been in. And that's a couple hundred dudes across the past 20 years, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's, that's where it is. And then it also happened 
that uh, there's a there's a House of Representatives member from Colorado, Jason Crow, who's a Democrat. Cotton's a Republican. And Jason Crow actually did serve in the Ranger Regiment. So hmm, he sparked it even more. And I, and I got into this a little bit on Twitter, too, because he posted a picture of him and his tan beret. Like, hey, if you don't have basically if you don't have one of these, sit down. And um, <laughs> oh, shit. So what I thought it was hilarious. Like, that's just bad boys talking shit. Right. Like, I'm here for it. But the 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 dunk was uh, general retired uh, Tony Thomas, who is an absolute spec ops legend. I mean, commanded Delta, commanded the Ranger Regiment, commanded JSOC, mm-hmm. commanded USASOC, basically got got on there and told both of them to knock it the hell off. <laughs> <laughs> He's like the principal of the school fight. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, so Tony Thomas just comes in and is like, no, knock it off. <laughs> so that's 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 how it got into the news. Okay. And, I mean, Dan, I don't know how you feel about it. I'm actually really interested in your opinion, but to me, I don't, I always let it go unless someone wants to start trying to pretend like there's some Billy badass that, you know, is capable of, you know, kicking Arnold Schwarzenegger's ass and predator or some shit like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, nah, you can be quiet. <laughs> yeah. The, I, I think the only thing that gets me that makes me just kind of like, I'd be like <sighs> a little bit, you know, a sigh is every time that somebody does find out like I was a ranger or whatever. And then it's like mm-hmm. one of my mom's friends or something is like, oh, my son was a ranger, too. And I'm like, oh, yeah, where did he yeah. serve? And it's like 82nd. I'm like, mm, all right. Well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep. I, <laughs> you know, it's it's also one of those things that, you know, so through pretty much all of Tim Kennedy's fight career, when, you know, when he was when he was both active duty and then when he got off and was the National Guard, he was fighting mm-hmm. in strike force and the UFC and all that other stuff. Um. I was always around all that because I was at Ranger Up and we sponsored them and we really did a lot of the like ad bond stuff, you know, the advanced things that helped them out during fight week. And the amount of people publicly, privately, everyone that just referred to Tim as an army ranger when he was a special forces guy who had his ranger tab was absurd. Now that's a totally different argument. And that's really one of those where it's really clear who he is. And he's also in a special operations unit, right? It's like, mm-hmm. he's a green beret, right? Really easy people still couldn't get it. Like they just, they could not get it. And I, I think that definitely influenced me a little bit, Dan. Cause I'm just like, it just rolls off my back, like, like water off the back of a duck at this point. And again, yeah. unless they are trying to be pompous about it. Cause it's just like, I watched that and I'm like, nah, man, he's in, he's in group. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, like, yeah. Those are totally different worlds. Right. But people still can't figure it out. So the only thing I will say about this getting like to the national level of attention is maybe a higher percentage of people will start getting it right now. Mm. Maybe. Yeah, I hope so. But I hope so. Probably not. How many uh, tours did you do, Tom? I've got two. You got two. Okay. Afghanistan. What years were those? 2004. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Well, I, I got a question actually, because I, I wanted to ask you this. So, uh, you yeah. know, third battalion is the one that jumped into Afghanistan an objective Rhino. Mm-hmm. And what was that like sitting at second battalion and just kind of watching it happen? All right. So we've got to go back even farther. Yeah. Um, because when 9-11 happened, 2nd Ranger Battalion and I was there, we were in Germany. Mm. Oh, wow. So and what you need to understand, especially at that point, everything flew through Germany then. Yeah. Now, you know, you, you get kind of a direct flight, if you will. Um, but the army and the military in general did not have the logistical support to do anything but to go through through Germany. Mm. So we're already there. And actually... My my company, uh, Bravo Company, Second Ranger Battalion at that time was 
Um, and even Dan, and even Dan, as much as he's going to like, want to like use some salty language against me, is going to have to cop to the fact that at that, at that time in 2001, I was in a legendary Ranger company. I was at best a mediocre Ranger in the presence of those men and truly the presence of those heroes. Mm. Um, to give you perspective, all three of my squad leaders eventually made it over the fence into Delta. Uh, oh, my wow. platoon leader had spent, had spent seven years there. My platoon sergeant at the time, Daryl Feast, became the command sergeant mm-hmm. major of 2nd Ranger Battalion. Uh, second, yeah, second uh, platoon's uh, platoon sergeant at the time, Bernie Foligno, took over for Daryl Feast as the command sergeant major of 2nd Ranger Battalion. And third platoon's platoon sergeant, Chuck Albertson, eventually became the regimental sergeant major. So he even went one level up. He took 1st uh, Battalion, then he went to regiment for that. Uh, our company commander, Rob Harmon, eventually became the battalion commander of 1st Ranger Battalion. Our platoon, or our first sergeant at the time, uh, Brendan Durkin, had actually jumped into Grenada. Not oh, Panama, <laughs> Grenada. All right. Um, like, dude, you know, my team leader um, eventually went to Ranger Recon. I mean, like, I was with some just pipe hitters. I, I mean, like, guys that you know, inside of our community are still really, really well known. Um, so as, as, as a thanks from the battalion commander at that time for being this squared away and being this badass, he decided that we were all going to go on an extra week exercise to work with the 173rd airborne brigade out of Vicenza, Italy <laughs> for a training site. Well, we were there in Germany and ACO, SECO headquarters. These guys are all going to have four days off. And all I can hear from those guys is where they're going to go, right? We're going to Paris. You know, I'm going to get on the bullet train <laughs> to Madrid for the day and come back. I oh, mean, like, geez. and the, and and even worse. So we're using Miles gear, which is basically this bullshit laser tag system that you put on the front of your gun that isn't accurate, that everybody, I mean, I'm watching Dan, like, laugh and, like, you know, not. Like, everybody in the regiment fucking hates Miles. I mean, this is hell, man. Mm. This is fucking hell, guys. And we are pissed and uh, i'll never forget mike smith who was another uh rto because i was the radio guy at the time asked me as i was getting ready to walk up to get the new frequencies because they used an even different type of crypto and radio usage than we did which was outdated and stupid and another reason to piss us off and he's like hey did you hear about new york and also like we're six we're no seven hours ahead yeah. of new york mm-hmm. at that time eastern standard time so it's the afternoon for us. It's like, we're getting ready to go out for the night. And uh, I'm like, New York, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, a plane hit the World Trade Center. Jeez. I'm like, no way, dude. And so, and then instantly it starts coming. Base is locked down. You know, they're like, you guys are going out to train because you're still on base, but everyone else is like shut down. So all these plans, everyone just gets iced. Um, and then we also didn't have a CNN feed at the mm-hmm. time the because the, the international feed at that point was cnn because we just didn't think we needed it we were going to do this box thing we were going to get three days off and we were going to bounce up out of there so they had taken all this stuff down so we get done with everything we're, we're we're getting ready to go you know doug taylor again it's been seven years in delta all he says to us for a pep talk is men now it's real train like you fight fight like you train he goes the gloves are off all right great get on the bird you know, we're on the Blackhawks and because I'm the radio guy, I can hear everything in my headset. And 
they're the pilots are communicating information. They're like, yeah, there's two planes, like all of those things that everybody sort of saw in real time. Mm -hmm. I'm listening and hearing from pilots. Then we get, then we get off the birds, go do the missions, um, you know, stop to the consolidation and reorganization. And part of it during the after action reviews was by the way, and here's the update. So this is four or five days of us. That's how we got information in oh, little wow. tiny snippets mm -hmm. and little tiny bits and pieces. And finally we get back. It's like, it's one of those And Dan, you know, this is one of those, you got in at like three in the morning, you know, back to the airfield and you, you check all your gear and everything. And all you're going to do is go into the chow hall eat some really crappy food that actually tastes delicious because you're just that hungry and you're just that tired. Um, and then you're going to go to bed and everyone's going to leave you alone for the rest of the day. So it's like, I mean, it's probably five 36 in the morning and we walk in. And at this point, you've got to remember that the rest of the world was so used to seeing those images, right? They were there. The shock had worn off. So they're just replaying them over and over and over as the talking mm. heads are, like are doing weeks. whatever they're doing. Yeah. And we hadn't. So we just look up at this TV. I will never forget it. I'm like so tired. It's like, I mean, camel on my face, all the crap. I look up. And for me, it's the first time to see that plane smash the second one. And I like just the rage came back mm -hmm. and just like, cause now there was the, the uh, that was our visceral reaction, you know, as, as a company. And so, and we're also like, we're in Germany. And, and when you travel on a training exercise away from base, you always have what you call the go to war palette. Mm. The, the, in case of emergency, here's all your ammo, break glass, let's go. Right. Yep. And we're all like, yeah, we know the go to war palettes are here. Right. Like we know what's going, oh yeah, we are going to go fuck some dudes up. Right. Like we were, <laughs> we really thought we were going to go. And, um, then the last, uh, the 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 second to last day that we were there, uh, Colonel Owens, who's the battalion commander at the time, calls everyone together and says, "Men, the decision's been made. Uh, we're going back to Fort Lewis mm -hmm. to prep." And uh, I was not the only guy who gave himself alcohol poisoning that night. Let's put it like that, <laughs> like for real. That's crazy. I mean, the medic ran out of IVs the next morning because we were all just and you know, I I feel like I should put context to this too. Like you got to imagine, especially in Ranger Regiment. All you do is eat, sleep, breathe, train to fight. Like that's it. So yes. you're yes. you're always amped up, geared up, ready to go. And at this point, it had been what over, I think, almost a decade since the last conflict. Yep. Yeah. And so and nine. Yeah. And so everybody's geared up and ready to go, and it's like you know we want to take on this fight, and to be that close to it. And thinking you're going, and then the last second, the rug pulled from under you. Like a lot of people wouldn't understand this, but to us, it's like a, it's like you're taking away our soul. Like you're just, you just crushed yeah. us. Like, yeah, like fuck, you just took away like our purpose, what we were meant to do, mm -hmm. and now we can't do it. I remember well, being one of those people that, that saw that too. Like on Sorry, that day, oh, I was just saying. I, I remember like how you were talking about. You know, you didn't realize it until days later um, what was happening, or hours later. It was like, I remember I was 11, I was young when that happened, but I remember I was in the hospital and I was in a bed in the hospital, like watching the TV as it was happening. And I just remember everyone in the hospital freaking out. And I was mm -hmm. like, it was almost like, it was almost like you couldn't believe it. Like you thought it was kind of yeah. fake. You were like, what? Like that really happened? But yeah, sorry to cut you off, but it, yeah, it was just an interesting no. time that day. 
Yeah. So we had that because we were listening to Armed Forces Radio and stuff. But the other thing, just to put a little context to the eat, sleep, breathe and train for it, especially because we were second battalion, like we really felt rubbed raw because for the Gulf War at the tail end, a couple companies from 175 got to go. They really didn't do much, but at least they got into the sandbox. At least they could say they got into the fight. Right. Bravo Company, 3rd Ranger Battalion, everyone knows from Black Hawk Down, right? Like, 3rd Battalion had gotten to go do something, right? 2nd mm-hmm. Bat had not been to combat since 1989 when we jumped into Panama. So when we finally went in February of 2002, or was it March? No, it was March. March 2002, when I got off the plane, I was one of the first three guys from 2nd Ranger Battalion to step off a plane into a war zone since Panama. Mm-hmm. so there was this either other layer especially inside of the battalions where we also thought like it's our turn it's our time not only that but we're here right yeah. like we are where we need to be to do this like yeah. it, whoever else they can't send anyone else and not make a miss us you know in flight so um you know i honestly i've, I've actually in real life later when I, I hurt my shoulder and went to staff have teased general Votel about that. That's, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> he was the regimental commander at the time. And, and I have busted his balls a little bit about that, you know, politely as an E5 does to a full bird colonel, but you know, yeah, we, we really thought we were going to go. Yeah. We really thought it was our time and it didn't happen. So after all that, I guess happened and, and you um, obviously then moved on with your life outside the military. What was that transition mm-hmm. personally like to you? kind of readjusting back to the civilian life. So I, I did myself absolutely no favors. Um, I was in an 8am, 8am economics class Mm -hmm. at the university of Illinois for my freshman year of college, two weeks after I separated from the military, six weeks after I got back for my second combat tour, which OPS Hmm. was the combat tour for, uh, when Pat Tillman died. Six weeks. And I was the guy fast. Six weeks. Wow. Um, I was the guy that picked up the radio. I was I was a part of the I was in the command center and all the stuff for for Pat. Um and so I like I honestly didn't even know what the fuck I was doing, man. I was it was just like, okay, I'm done. It was like it was a whole bunch of uh, you know, in, in the in the military, when you do your qualification, the first target, the closest one's 50 meters, and they call it fast freddy because it's up for like a second. And you've got to memorize it's the first target in both sets, right? Because otherwise you're gonna miss it if you're a new guy. Mm-hmm. It was just six weeks of fast freddies, man. Boom, 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 boom. So I get to school. Um you know, and I, I had to take like the remnant classes, right? Like I didn't even get to register properly. Like, I took the last registration you could do mm-hmm. and, you know, it's all that stuff. And uh, I, I will never forget the first day of school. I wore um, one of my Ranger uh, rendezvous shirts, which is, you know, when you do change a command, like you get a t-shirt and all this. And it was the one Dan that had Afghanistan and Iraq, the, the countries. And it says, we do bad things to bad people. Who's next? Um, (laughs) nice. (laughs) Yeah. So I have that and this apps, I mean, I I wish this kid wasn't as cliche as he had been because I think it would have made the story like maybe sound a little more realistic, but I swear my combat scroll, some kid, white kid with long dreaded out hair wearing tie dye as part of his t-shirt. Like, I mean, just like the straight up, like dope smoking hippie cliche you can think of. It's like, yo man, that shirt's kind of aggressive, dude. (laughs) 
And I'm like, <laughs> oh, do you have a fucking problem with it? <laughs> I'm like, I can see you saying that. <laughs> oh, dude, it was just like, like I mean, you just came out of Venice Beach. I, yeah, I mean, honest to God, that oh, it was just like, first of all, what the fuck are you doing in the cornfields of Illinois? Second of all, why the, why do you give a fuck about my shirt? Third of all, who the fuck are you again? Right, you know, and so my transition was awful. Um, it was really, really bad. I was really, really lost. Um, I, I almost committed suicide once. Um, I had, I had taken to this habit of cleaning my 45, like it was a religion. I mean, mm. like that was how I was comfortable. It's like, I knew how it went together. Um, you know, and I was just, I, I literally would, um, I just, I take it apart, put it back together, take it apart, put it back together, take it apart, put it back together. And one day, like I'm going through this and suddenly like it's at my head and I don't know why. Oh, wow. Hmm. And I just start and I've gotten a lot better with emotion. But at that point in my life, I really believe men don't cry and men don't, you know, like all that, you know, bullshit, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that we've been taught. And I start crying and I just put it down and I call my best friend sobbing. And she at that time, you know, my best friend at the time, and she'd only heard me cry maybe two or three times in my life. And we'd been friends since high school. Um, and I'm like, this is just what's going on. And she's like, oh my God, you know? And so we talked for a little while and then I got blackout fucking drunk. I mean, an entire bottle of Jim Beam that night, blackout fucking drunk. And, you know, I wish, I wish that like, that was the story and I, and I cleaned my life up. But the truth is, is that I just went on the biggest, uh, most insane, college party bender that you can imagine because Mm -hmm. instead of trying to deal with my problems instead of trying to admit that i wasn't okay uh, i just started working in radio as the morning i was the morning drive dj with the totally badass uh dj name of ranger wait you were a dj (laughs) that was (laughs) morning drive morning drive producer and uh head dj of um of the morning show uh, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a multi-tour combat vet in the middle of the cornfields of Illinois in the spring of 2005 at this point. And you can just imagine, you know, peak patriotism and all that other bullshit. You can imagine all of the stupid stuff I got myself into. Um, and it, it took a, it, it took a, it took to the point where I honestly, it got so bad that I had a complete complete nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I'm not exaggerating. I completely freaked out to the point where I'm in a target and I'm like, I, I told myself what I wanted to do. The plan I told myself, I'm like, okay, I'm going to get a map of the United States. I'm going to throw darts at it. And wherever those darts land, that's where I'm going to go. Mm. Right. That's where I'm going to go. And I'm going to find, I don't know what I'm going to find there, but I'm going to find it. And I'm, you know, I am, I'm fucking losing my shit. Mm-hmm. They don't have darts in this target. I am, I am, I am pacing for 10, 15 minutes. I'm not exaggerating up and down, like the game areas and the toy area and everything in target (laughs) darts. And I am losing my shit. And I see, I'm not even joking. And I still have it. Actually, where is it? Uh, I don't know. It's somewhere up on my shelves, but I found a magic eight ball. And for five days, a magic eight ball made all of my decisions for me. Really? Wow. Just you really? asking questions and it's spitting out answers. Just just me dri- driving my car all through. I ended up 
The first night that I stopped, I ended up at a place called Slayersville, Kentucky. Go look that up sometime on Google Maps. How have I not I'm been not there yet? I don't know. That sounds like, like a five times the journey across the country. Like a fucked up place to be. <laughs> sounds like where I want to be. It's, it is. It is. Uh, it's in the middle of nowhere, and that's the. It's literally at the end of the line. Um, <clears throat> and I, and I slowly started to kind of pull myself back together. It was like, mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't. I don't. To this day, I don't know how how I fully kind of got back as far as I did because I mean, guys, I'm not exaggerating that magic eight ball for five days made every decision for me. It was mm-hmm. like, can I, I mean, can I eat? I mean, outside of like having to go to the bathroom, like, can I eat? Oh, I can't. I'll wait. I'm hungry an hour. Like, can I eat? It is decidedly so. Can we stop? You know? And I mean, thank God. Like, should wait, we pull up Pornhub tonight or tomorrow night? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that, did that exist back then? Pornhub did not exist. Oh back, shit! Uh, it, it was the JC Penny lingerie. Yeah, section. Plus, they, plus they didn't even have. I mean, you're like what, like seventy years old, so they didn't have smartphones back then. Nothing. Yeah. Oh, ouch! Oh, that hurts. I had my BlackBerry. I had my very first BlackBerry that I bought myself. Thank you nice. very much. You're gonna see eight ball much. stocks go up after this episode, <laughs> right? <laughs> You know, so, I, you know, because I, I wonder, um, because I, I did the opposite, it seems like. But did you when you first started college, did you did you lean heavy into your military experience? I mean, you had the persona Rangers, so it seems like you kind of leaned on it and was like, yeah, you see all that shit in the news. Like I I was there. I was doing that shit. Like and when people were asking you questions, were you were you quick to like give them all the truth or did you kind of hold back? <sighs> So I, cause my, my degree at first I was going to study, I st- first started studying international relations and then, um, I was, they were going to make me do a spe- semester overseas, but the only place that was really going to fit what I wanted to do was Jordan. Mm-hmm. And at that time they thought that, that was too much of a risk. Like, like we don't really advise it. Like we'll let you go if, if you really want to. Mm-hmm. So I changed to political science. So I really became the, like, you're wrong guy. And here's why. Um, my, you know, and and Dan, Dan and I served the national guard together. So he's, he's heard me take apart wannabe officers and whittle them down to a pretty small, (laughs) tiny little nub verbally. Um, I've got reasonable verbal acumen. And so I would just, I do that to professors. And the other thing is, is that when you're a ranger, you learn how to plan recon, Mm -hmm. you know, and target profile. And you can do all of that to a professor because the dirty little secret, if you're in college right now, at any professor that you have is that their PhD means that they are very, very knowledgeable about one very specific thing. And that knowledge is a hundred miles deep, truly. And the three or four directly adjacent things to them, they're very knowledgeable as well. But if it's a 100, 200 level survey course and they're not tenured, and so they've got to like slog through and they teach that, Mm -hmm. they know as much or less than you do about anything that isn't in their their direct PhD field, right? Mm. So some professor would piss me off. I would go look up their thesis. I'd read the executive summary of it. So I knew what they were. And then I would just wait. I would just wait for that one thing that I already kind of knew something about in the course or interested in me. And I'd make sure that I knew as much as you could. Like I do all the reading and then I do all like the comparative reading. And like, I would spend like, you know, if I'd done this much naturally, I probably would have been a straight A student, but I wasn't. I was a pain in the ass. And I'd wait and then I'd just ambush them. 
And I'd be like, well, what about this? What about that? And if I could tie that to my military experience, so much the better, because then in the eyes of the class, I'm the expert, not the professor mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, to the point, to the point where I actually, uh, <laughs> his name was Mike and he was teaching the war 1851 to the present survey course. Uh, it was, uh, I think it was history 251, poli sci 251, something like that. And uh, in the very beginning of the course, he said something about how American foreign policy is uh, screwing up in Iraq because we don't wear our soft head gear. We all, we always wear our helmets. And if we did it like the Brits were doing, then it'd be better. And I raised my hand and I'm like, I mean, listen, I, I understand the validity of, of trying to bring down the temperature of the environment. I said, but they're in Basra. They're in the oil ports. Mm -hmm. They're in the place that have always been super Western friendly, that have always had a very vested interest in being with us. Like that's not a real apt comparison. And he, he literally did like the professor, like pat me, pat me on the head. And that's cute thing. And I, I straight up turned into an insurgent. You just fucking snapped. I was a, oh, I was a terror. I mean, I was a nightmare to the point where he, he said something about asymmetrical warfare. And I'm like, you're wrong. It's like, what? I'm like, you're flat out wrong. And he's like, well, I appreciate, I'll never forget this. Like, I appreciate, you know, your, your service. And when your boots on the ground, it can look like one way. I'm like, my second combat tour was staff in JSOC. I saw the entire battlefield. I tracked the entire battlefield. I am telling you that you're making a comparison between Afghanistan and Iraq, and it's wrong. And here's why. You know, I went in for like two minutes. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm telling you that your macro point here further is wrong for the following reasons. He's like, well, I don't think I am. I'm like, I don't. It's not a question of thinking. I am telling you that you're definitively wrong. And he's like, <laughs> get the fuck out of my lecture hall. And I'm like, no. And, and then he snaps, he starts screaming at me and I'm like, well, big gulps, huh? <laughs> See you later. <laughs> I got called into the Dean's office for this. Um, his, he had just gotten his PhD and his academic advisor is actually this very, very knowledgeable guy, Dr. John Lynn, who's taught at the Naval Academy. I mean, that guy really knows his shit. Um, so Lynn's in there. Mike's in there just stewing. The dean's in there behind this massive desk that to this day I still don't know how the fuck he got in that tiny little office. And uh, they're like, you know, well, um, you know, uh, so what's going on? And I explain it. And, you know, uh, they finally were like, you know, how about we just let you do an independent study for the coursework on this and you can pick it? You're like, all right, <laughs> like, get me out of the class. Yeah. So I, I ultimately did like a 25 page paper on, on Somalia and, uh, you know, it was, it was hilarious. And then the other thing is Mike invited me to review it instead of taking a final at lunch. Like he's like, all right, well, we're going to go to lunch. And I found out a couple of years later that John Lynn made him go to lunch with me because he's like, the kid's actually right. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I can't tell him that because this is going to be bad for class morale and we're going to mm -hmm. like solve the problem. But the kid's actually right, Mike, and you really probably should listen to him. Like he, he had the right analysis of the difference between the comparative analysis between Afghanistan and Iraq. So, I mean, th but that was the shit that I did, Dan. I was just a holy fucking terrorist on, you know, my war on, you know, the ivory tower of, of academic learning, which was its own mistake, but didn't you, you know, uh, lost. didn't you have just cause you, you lightly touched on it with a 25 page, um, paper on Somalia. Um, mm -hmm. weren't you explaining or that you're super close or that, uh, you kind of helped out with some of the stuff with like Black Hawk down, like the movie. 
So yeah, actually I did. Um, total weird quirk of fate. Um, when I was a private and I went to pre-ranger to go to ranger school, um, I got chillblain, which is a precursor to frostbite on my ears mm -hmm. um, and the tips of my fingers. And so they held us back because they want to make sure we were fully healed. They didn't want to send us to ranger school, like already kind of busted. And it just happened to be at the exact time that all the guys that were coming to play Rangers in the movie were down at Fort Benning. Interesting. So I, uh, I got to help train all those guys. Um, and, uh, I got to work with them. I got to meet them. They're actually a really good group of guys. Um, like we were, you know, Tom Sizemore was an asshole. Uh, and he didn't even really show up for us. Like I did save in private Ryan, fuck you guys. And he was also super, super into drugs at that point. Like that's just public information. So I don't feel like I'm blowing him up. Not that he knows who I am or would care, I think, but, um, and so he like bowed out right away. And then all of us as the Rangers were like, Oh, well, we're going to get Josh Hartnett to quit. Right. We're going to get that little pretty boy, you know, and he was the <laughs> only one who didn't have a high and tight haircut for the training and everything, because he had to, he had to get done with us and go back and do the final reshoots for 40 days and 40 nights. Mm. And so we're like, Oh, we're going to fuck this dude up. Right. So one of the, one of the fields at, uh, by regiment headquarters is called Peden field. And it's this big open thing with this old, old, old dirt track. And it's basically the place where you go to screw with pre ranger students before you go to coal range. Uh, you know, the ranger indoctrination students and, and all this, like, it's just the place that, you know, instructors go to screw with people. And so we wait, we, we waited with them until like eight 39 at night after they'd done a full day and we were doing, I'm up, he sees me, I'm down, you know, fire, basic fire maneuver stuff. And this is training, which really it's just, we're going to make Josh Harden and quit. Like that was the entire, like not the entire reason we were out there. That's not fair. And if someone's listening to this, they're going to get pissed off about it from back in that time. Like they needed to learn how to fire a maneuver, but at the same time, like, I'm sorry to everyone else. Like we wanted to watch Josh Harden quit. Like that was like, like your the, motto. The, the, yeah, the, the instructors, the instructors are giggling, you know, all of us privates, like we're in on the joke. Like that's how sort of open it was. And they're going and the craziest thing happened. And this is actually when I knew that like, no matter what else happened in the movie, the ranger part of it at least was going to be locked down. Hartnett is a legitimate athlete. First of all, he's out maneuvering everybody. He is like 15 yards by the third iteration of it in front of everybody. And they had rubber ducks. So those, those, the fake plastic heavy mm -hmm. uh, M16s. I will never forget this. He turns around and sees everyone behind it and takes his rubber duck and just slams it as hard as he can into the mud. Cause it's like rain. It's like drizzling and stuff. And he starts cursing all of these guys out. I mean, chewing them out in a way that would make my, you know, former NCO ass very proud. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's <laughs> and we're cool. all like instantly, everyone's like, this dude ain't quitting like this, this, this dude's in it to win it. And so one of the instructors picks up his rubber duck and goes, Josh, come here. It's like, this is your rifle. You treat this like you treat, you know, and he gives him like the most beautiful girl in the world speech. You know, he goes, he goes, don't let me see you do that again. Pats him on the shoulder. He goes, but you got the rest of it, right? Oh, shit. <laughs> You know, and, and after that, man, like the, he set the tone and honestly, yeah. like I had, a, I had a lot of respect for him in the, in the way he did it. And then from there, man, those guys, those guys were rolling. And uh, I think the coolest thing or the, the most interesting and sort of funnest thing is Owen McGregor, who played Grimes. Um, is that how you pronounce it? It's Owen. 
Have I have always yeah. been wrong? I've Ewan? Always pronounced it Ewan? Owen. Owen? You, no, Ewan, Ewan. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if he, I'm probably yeah, wrong. I, I honestly don't know. I, I'll have to go back and look, but um he ended up we gave him 20 rounds to do live ready up drills on the range, and he put 20 out of 20 in the X-ray. Like he actually shot, like he listened, he did everything. And he comes and I had done a lot. I just happened to be in the group with him that had done a lot of venture and clear, like basic, you know, corners and stuff. Um, you know, all the stuff that we used to make the OCS students do Dan over and over again. And oh yeah. Giggled when they told us they didn't want to do it and like, keep doing it. Um, I just happened to be working with the group as like the assistant instructor, the actual instructor for all this. Mm-hmm. He comes running off the range, man. He's so excited. He's like, look, 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 Tom, like, you know, and I'm like, dude, that's awesome. Like that's, that's great. And, uh, so like that was really kind of funny and then he had actually had an incident where he kept putting his finger in the trigger well mm. of his of his of his f16 mm. and we're screaming at him like god damn it you don't put your finger in the fucking trigger until you're ready to shoot so you can look at this this is actually true uh and it stuck with him so if you go and pull up the the pre uh blackhawk down theatrical one sheet where the guys are all moving and there's a two helicopters over the top of it. Oh, I remember that. And it says, leave no man behind. Like the, the pre, like the, the announcement that, that it's coming, it's Owen McGregor on the cover and you can, and you can see him and you can see very clearly that his finger is flat where it should be outside the trigger. Well, yep. So <laughs> that awesome. was my first real win as an instructor. <laughs> That's, they probably had awesome. to make sure they got that right. Cause they would have gotten a lot of backlash. I imagine. Oh, dude. Like you're playing uh, a military yeah. movie and you got your fucking yeah, finger in the well. There's there's a difference. There's definitely a clear difference because I know what you're talking about. When when people are learning to keep their finger out of the trigger well and they just have a tendency to constantly keep putting their finger back in it, like when yeah. they when it finally clicks with them, they put their finger so straight and flat above that trigger well mm-hmm. that it's like, you know, they're yep. con- like consciously thinking about it. Like, don't fucking do it. Don't do it. Oh, yeah. Because usually you can, you can just relax it and have a like slight bend. But you can see people that are yeah, just like, no. yeah, fucking iron finger yep. on it. It is. And if you look at the picture, it is straight as an arrow, man. <laughs> he is like, he is just there. And I'm like, yes. that's, awesome. that's awesome. We did it right. I want to hear more about so, how you guys like linked up in the guard afterwards and how you guys became <laughs> friends after being at Ranger. Well, t- Tom, you should tell your story kind of in the guard because I know you did did quite a bit before we met um, yeah. before you made your way to 139th. Yeah. So when I was in college, actually, I was in the 138th training detachment, which is in Indiana, how the 138th is in Indiana and the 139th is in North Carolina. I have no fucking clue. Um, but I had done that and I had started as just a baseline infantry tactics instructor and ended up becoming the senior instructor. And we actually were awarded the Institute of Excellence Um for for combat training and stuff and that on some levels in my military career was the craziest thing and in a in not even a weird way but in a, if i'm being honest on some levels it's what i'm the most proud of was because from 05 to 09 i had two and a half weeks along with the other instructors that i worked with when mm-hmm. i was a senior instructor to train up guys that 36 hours i'm not joking 36 hours after they left our course they were crossing over from kuwait into iraq wow jeez as as infantry and these guys like and dan will tell you like two and a half weeks is not enough time it's not no no i can imagine um and so it was this how do we take all of this 
knowledge and all these things that these guys need to know to survive. Okay. Because these guys were running around Irish, which was getting, you know, IED and, and vehicle born IEDs all the time. I mean, these dudes were getting shot at. I mean, they, this was in that period of time in Iraq where if you were moving, you were a target. And if mm-hmm. you were a target, you were getting shot at. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, it, it, it wasn't like some of the stuff where it's like you sit around on a base all day with your thumb up your butt or something, you know, like this, you know, these national guard guys were getting into the shit and we had to train them. And, um, another guy that was, uh, he's still in the Indiana national guard. Actually, Jeff just pinned his, uh, Sergeant major. Like he just got it. Um, super proud of that dude. I fucking love that guy. Um, but Jeff Phillips had been in three, seven, five, and he actually jumped into Rhino. Um, and I got there about the same time and we're like, we're, we're sitting around in the team room one day and it was like, well, how are we going to fucking do this? And we both looked at each other and at the, almost the exact time, same time we said, treat him like a ranger private and make sure they know the basics. And that was it. Like we stripped everything out of that course that we possibly could mm-hmm. and, and bent everything around. And it was just battle drills, shooting, fitness, and constantly putting stress on guys and forcing them to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when we had first gotten there, they considered it kind of like a gentleman's course. So it was like this nine to five, check the box thing. And the first year that we were there, uh, the command sergeant major of the state of Indiana came down and told us we couldn't bail anybody else out because we had already trimmed off 40% of the guys the first year. And we're like, sorry, Sergeant major, but we're not putting our stamp of approval on dudes knowing they're going to war. Like yeah. it's, it's not happening. We know the brigade's going, we know what these guys are being backfilled for. Hell no. Um, and that's how it started. And every year it was the same thing. Um, and it was really interesting because some States stopped sending Indiana guys and <laughs> some States loaded up on our class mm. because it all depended how seriously they wanted their people trained, which to me and to Jeff and to Mark and Tony and these other guys I served with, whose names mean nothing to you guys, um, uh, you know, Mike Lighty and stuff like that was a huge compliment, right. You know, that, that people wanted, wanted to be there. Um, I graduated college. Um, I moved to Durham, North Carolina to be the COO of Ranger Up, the military lifestyle apparel company, and I was still in the guard. Mm-hmm. So I had to transfer. And, you know, luckily, so luckily, um, at the time, North Carolina had technically an infantry training course and they wanted to sort of revive it. So they brought me in, they hired me to be the course manager for it. Mm-hmm. So I was going to going to run that. And that was also how Bodie, um, uh, Dan and I's friend, Steve Bodefeld sort of kind of came in too, because like, they were expecting like, you know, we needed guys like backfill this infantry thing. I had been there like three or four months. I think Bodie had been there like his first month or something like that. I'm like, nah, we're not going to do this infantry thing. Anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yep. What? Um, and so they're like, okay, well, you guys are going to go work with the OCS students. Always seem to be officers. That'll be a great idea with me. Um, Steve, Steve, and, and Dan. Steve actually had the temperament to work with those guys because he's super laid back, and you know they would say something dumb, and you just kind of give him this like look, and then he'd, like go tell one like the full cadre, like please go mess that guy up or whatever, or he'd say something sort of snide, and make him feel stupid, and because he's just great at that, and I'm just like raging Ragnar of wrath and destruction and do push-ups and that didn't go over real well in, in North Carolina. Um, and so, you know, cause at that point it was 2011, I think mm. 2010, 2011. Mm. And, and the military was starting to change. Like they were starting to get way more politically correct. There weren't as many people going overseas. Uh, they weren't seeing quite the threat. 
for, for the moment. And so um, a lot of the sort of like garrison or like, you know, inside and on base behavior started coming out and I got in trouble. I don't, Dan, I don't remember if you were there at this time. I think you might've just gotten there. Um, we're in our team room, you know, the, the now defunct infantry team room, just like probably shamming out. I don't remember exactly why we were in there, but someone was walking up to the door because they wanted to say something or they wanted to like get our attention or whatever. The doors closed. Okay. And through the door, they heard me call Steve a fucking moron. I'm like, you fucking moron. They don't, they stop. They turn around, they go back into the office and they file a complaint against me for abusive behavior. Oh man. Like, and it was funny because the, 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 the Lieutenant, the Lieutenant Colonel comes out and looks at me and is like, look, this is just the stupid stuff I have to do right now. So please just make this as easy on me as possible. And I will make this as painless on you as possible. He's like, and he, and he literally like pulls out a checklist and like does the counseling and like I sign it. And I'm like, this is so stupid, man. Like you, you have no context other than hearing me call someone that I considered then and still consider a very good friend, a fucking moron. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the ask, closest friend man, right there. Well, you know, like, yeah, the room that we were in, I think the reason why you probably got caught is because it was like literally a tiny, I don't even know, storage room that we had a coffee pot in. It was like closet. nothing. It was a broom closet. But it was right by the um, the auditorium. Yeah. So people was. would come by and like oh, okay. give like, I don't know, you know, uh, briefings and, and lessons and stuff like that. And I don't know. It was probably during one of those moments where people were in yeah, transition. I mean, it, yeah, it, it probably was. It was so, but it was just absurd. And that was yeah. and that was kind of the beginning of the end for me in the National Guard. I'm like, look. And I also at that point, I had been at Ranger Up for three or four years, the mm. company was really, really growing. And actually, <clears throat> you know, the reason that I know General Farader, who, you know, the the three of us had talked to. I love he's Mike. He's a cool guy. Oh, yeah, dude, he's awesome. Yeah. But I knew him through Ranger Up. And I was getting to this point where I could be, I was about ready to, I could have gotten promoted to E7. I could have been Sergeant First Class in Mento, which would have been awesome. Like, that's a really, that's a, at that point, you're now kind of a senior NCO rank and you can start affecting things. And I was really proud of that. I was like, okay, I can be Sergeant First Class Amenta in the National Guard, or I can be Tom Amenta, COO of Ranger Up. And Sergeant First Class Amenta can do a little bit, but he's already kind of pissed off about a lot of the garbage that he's dealing with. He doesn't like the direction things are going. He's not particularly politically correct ever. Mm-hmm. Or I can pick the phone up and call, at that point, the commander of Fort Benning, Georgia, who Three weeks ago, I was sitting at the ba- the on post base watching the UFC fights with talking shit to, right? You know, good natured, mm-hmm. and you know, Mike's got his at this point, I think he's a second or third degree Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belt. Like that dude, by the oh, way, wow. can scrap. Yeah, he's 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 very very quiet, very low key about it, but that dude can fight. Um, and it's like, where am I better serving my community at this point? Where am I really better serving, you know, the military because you know, I'm, I'm constantly frustrated and upset and I had already, I just gotten married and, um, you know, all this other stuff. And it's like, which one? So I, you know, I made the decision to leave the the guard and, and continue to do the ranger up thing. What did, what were the experiences that you, um, you learned from that, from helping the startup of ranger up and being involved in all that? Cause obviously as a civilian, I've known about them for a few years, but I know they go mm-hmm. way back before then to where they are a very popular veteran apparel company. And obviously with mm-hmm. you being behind the tailwind of that, what was that like for you? I, I mean, I, I think that 
I, I think that there's like there's lessons I learned about just entrepreneurship in general, um, which you know now um, I still volunteer to be a veteran entrepreneur coach um, with uh, Jason Van Camp mm-hmm. through Warrior Rising and Mission Six Zero. Um, when he needs people, um, and through random friends of mine, I've got three or four people that you know I help coach and mentor and, and really try and get them to their ideas because I love the challenge of entrepreneurship That's in general. Cool. Um, so that was sort of the first sort of level of it was it just trying to create this company because my parents thought I was nuts for going into the military. They thought I was fucking insane to <laughs> leave. At that point I was in St. Louis. Um, I've been dating my then girlfriend who is, has her PhD in medical physics is six feet tall. She looks like a model. Like, you know, my parents think I've got on easy street and I just need to find a job in St. Louis and I'm going to get married to mm-hmm. this really, really smart girl. And we're going to have all these kids and it's going to be great. And, you know, Oh, look, you know, they, they, all this stuff. And then I'm like, nah, fam, I'm, I'm going to go do a t-shirt startup in 2008 in the teeth in the right in the very teeth of the housing crisis. Oh yeah. They're like, you're insane. I'm like, no, like this is, I, I believe we can do this. And you follow your passion. Um, yeah, it was it, so that was the first lesson was follow your passion and follow your dreams. The second thing was learning how to be an entrepreneur, learning how to run a business. And I'm really glad that, you know, I I, I got lucky I had a great partner um, who was the CEO and the primary stakeholder in the company, Nick Palmaciano. Uh, Nick, you know, graduated from West Point, had gotten his MBA from Fuqua, um, had been at John Deere doing their licensing and, and branding stuff. So he really understood the apparel game and the, and the market. So like all the forces were there, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and Nick. Nick recognized that I was very creative, that I had the right outlook for the brand and I knew how to reach people um, in that way. And he was patient enough to teach me how to be a business guy. Um, He tells a story better than I do, but he's not here. Um, I didn't know how to use Excel at all when I got there. Um, Only thing I'd ever done in stats was I'd program stuff in R, you know, when I needed to do it for like game theory and stuff like that. And I was very, I was actually very proficient at that. Like I could take a data set and to this day, I could still do it in like SQL or whatever but I really didn't know how to functionally use Excel. <laughs> and so he wanted me to, to run some basic numbers analysis. And I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. <laughs> and I start using a calculator oh, to do every calculation. Like <laughs> and then I would plug it into the Excel sheet. So he's thinking this is gonna take me like 45 minutes, right? You know, I mean, it, it, it required a little bit of a lift, but it wasn't, it wasn't much. And I just didn't know how to use the tool. And uh, he comes back, he's like, you done yet? I'm like, no, no, I'm working on it, I'm working on it, right? He's like, okay comes back like in an hour and I'm still working on it. And he's like, he's like, what? He's like, what is going on? I'm like, dude, I'm working on it. Back the fuck up off me. Right. Like we're, we're still sort of getting used to working with each other. So he kind of goes away and cause you know, I'm, I'm a little agitated. Finally comes back like 20 minutes later and I'm not done. And he goes, all right. He goes, stop, show me what's going on here. Right. You know, he's figured out something's wrong. So he sees me doing it. And we've also gotten to the point where I've established all you have to do with an equal function is just drag it. You know what I'm saying? Like I've, I put enough in where that's all you do. And he looks at me and goes, I'm going to show you how to do something. And before I do, you got to promise me that you're not going to hit me and you got to just deal with it. Okay. And I'm just furious. I'm like, sure. What, what the fuck ever do you just, <laughs> and all he does is click drag and it's all there. There are two times that I ever left that office early. Right then I looked at him and go, fuck this, I'm going home. 
And then the day that him and I had made the decision, you know, and really made the determination that uh, we just wanted different things out of the company. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we had that conversation. I'm like, all right, well, look, like I just, I'm going home today. He's like, yeah, it's no problem. Those were the two days. And I was, oh man, I was so hot. I was like, oh my God. And then came back in the next day and he's like, we, uh, we need to teach you a little bit of Excel, don't we? <laughs> That's funny. Dude, I'm still not that advanced with Excel. I will proudly say, but I need to, you know, learn a little bit more about it. But I know Dan he's much more the the numbers kind of guy and i'm like you i'm more on the creative side of things where i'm like dude you want me to build a website you want me to fucking take photos build videos do social media i'm all yours but anything else i suck at it i love doing magic with excel (laughs) yeah you'll pull up stuff real quick and be like here i'll do it for you and i'm like holy shit well it's funny because now i'm at the spot dan you can appreciate this I'm like the guy that can like run a simple regression and make it look like magic, or I can run like an if then statement, you know, mm-hmm. or, or the, the mythical X lookup, which people are like, Ooh, you know, yeah. which <laughs> once you know how to do it, isn't that hard, but people think it's insane. Um, but honestly, like kind of a business bow, I think that that's actually what I learned too, is I learned how to marry my creative. Cause at the end of the mm-hmm. day, I love to write. Um, I love to, to communicate, you know, my, my new job now is being the director of marketing for a safety and security company. And, uh, I love that challenge, but also, I, especially in that startup, I really learned that you have to have both. You have to have enough of a background to look at the numbers and do an analysis to calculate the opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. And you have to be creative enough and you have to have the passion and you have to have the outside the box thinking um, or outside the self, self thinking is one of the, the guys at mentoring who comes from finance once said to... Um, really capitalize on the opportunity well, that, so that's that, that was the, definitely what i learned at Ranger Up. that's that's the interesting side is it like obviously with dan and i you know owning a business together is it's like i want to learn more of that side of things and then also mm-hmm. show dan more on the behind the scenes of like what i do creatively because i think it's right probably a pro for us to both understand the business on all facets mm-hmm. rather than being like i can't do this you need to do it so it's kind of oh. like I just think it's pretty cool that, you know, Dan wants to learn more about like the photography side, the creative side, the website, you know, he, he'll go on the website and move stuff around. Like when I was on my trip and it's kind of cool that he's learning that and then I can go learn other stuff too. Uh, Yes. If you, it's really important. I think it's really important for someone to have their, their core competencies, but at the same time, you know, in one of the things that the Rangers do, that's actually really rare for American conventional forces is we cross train a lot. Mm -hmm. So like, Someone can be the primary demo guy, but if he goes down, everyone on the fire, everyone on the fire team knows how to implement the charge, right? Yep. Like they might not know how to build it, but everyone knows how to execute the, de- the, the demo breach. Um, you know, you might not be in the sniper section or a long gunner, but once or twice a year, the snipers get the, get the rifles out and they show you and they explain to you long, the difference between long range shooting and carbine shooting. You know, you're, you're, even if you're not on the gun team, you're, you're playing with the, with the machine guns and stuff because you've got to know how it works. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I think in business that that's really important too. Like, I don't, you know, you, you've got to understand both sides of the house you, for the two of you. And I agree, like it's, and I think it's a really huge credit to you guys. You've got to understand what the other person's doing. Cause especially when times get tough, especially when there's stress or there's a deadline and you have different ideas of what the priority should be. <gasps> you know, that was one of those things. Oh, hi Athena. It's my dog. Um, <laughs> one of the, you know, those priorities, you, you've got to figure it out, you know, and you've got to be able to have that shared communication because that's where it goes sideways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a, I mean, it was, it was funny in the moment. And it's still funny to me. 
uh, it was the second big holiday rush at Ranger up, you know, during like, you know, the holidays and it's getting down to the wire. And I thought we should fold this t-shirt. Nick thought we should fold this other shirt to get it out the door and stuff. And it turned into this like couples, nothing fight. Right. But the problem is, is you've got a Ranger qualified guy and a bat boy who are already tired, who are already over caffeinated, who also really believe that they're right, you know, and we're arguing. Right. And, and like, the COO versus CEO thing has gone completely out the window, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're just like, I'm like, no, like this is my fucking warehouse. This is how I fucking, you know, Juan is like, no, this is my company, you know. And finally, he looks at me and he goes, I "Swear to God, I'm about to punch you in the fucking face." We both look at each other, and it just <laughs> broke the tension. We both start dying laughing. I'm like, okay, well, um, now that that went too far, we hit the uh, breaking point. You- you know, like, and so like we, we got a little bit of a chuckle out of it. And of course, like all of our, the warehouse employees are kind of peeking around the corner, you know, like, uh Oh, mom and dad are fighting. <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's safe to uh, say, you know, it, it's safe to say you're responsible for starting up the, uh, the bro veteran community then. Are we going to, are we going to really take it there? Are you really going to do that to me? <laughs> <laughs> I just, um, I just know it's a sensitive curveball, but it's still in relation to what we're talking about. No, it is. And so the, the short answer is, yeah, actually. Um, I mean, and, and Nick and I have had, had, had a few conversations about that. We're not the only ones I've had. Um, I've had a bunch of conversations with some other people that were sort of there around the time. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, the, the watching the, the attack on the Capitol will, was really really hard man really embarrassing Um, it was really it was it was it was i i have i'm lucky and blessed to have some really really good people in my life and that includes you guys because we we've been talking about this Mm -hmm. you know before the podcast um you know and i i recognize intellectually that it's quote unquote not my fault right um that people make choices that you know um some of this stuff just it's it's not it's not my fault, mm-hmm. but you know, um, the, the first time that you can really find a hyper stylized meant to be cool. Don't tread on me. Gadsden flag is RU zero five, six. That was our first DTOM shirt. Mm-hmm. And it's, and honestly, to this day, in terms of pure design, it is one of the coolest shirts I have ever helped design. It was it was, and it is on some levels, a fucking banger. Yeah. Uh, black t-shirt, the, the snakes in that bright yellow, it's really there. And then in this, it's cool gray eight is the color. Uh, on the side behind the snake is the 13 stars of the Betsy Ross. Mm-hmm. And it's got this like distressing and it's, uh, especially at the time when we did it, it is, you know, which was, which is right around like, I think it was. 2010 2011 Mm -hmm. this thing is up from i mean bo especially because you're a design guy like this dude this thing dude is a fucking banger um i like a lot of the designs so when i say that you're responsible i think during that time period it was really fucking badass so it's like you did something so unique and i think that uh Mm -hmm. both you guys so i don't think it's like oh you're responsible for what's happening i say jokingly because i know you wear it pretty hard on your sleeve with it but i think that you guys found a niche and found a demographic of people to sell to. And then other companies kind of went after that same market to where now it's just become overdone. 
Yeah, there's there's definitely part of that. I mean, there's some that we had, dude, that I look back on and I'm like, I mean, they were straight up trying to cash checks on it. And I, I got to be honest about that. Like there's yeah. there's three or four shirts that even when we did it, we knew it was going to cash. And, <laughs> you know, we just kind of threw them together. Yeah, keep the lights but, on. Yeah, you know, but but the core of it was you took you took a couple of history geeks and Nick and I are both mad history geeks who are pretty centrist in our in our political views when when it's when it all goes in the balance you know maybe a little libertarian on some levels um especially at that time and you you find this aesthetic right um and then other people copy it and then other people took it way way too far um like i don't i certainly don't feel responsible for QAnon or some of the (laughs) dipshit lack of critical thinking that's gone into this. Right. Yeah. Um, I certainly don't, I, I certainly don't own insurrection. Right. But there was one point where I saw one of the shirts that we did, um, that sold pretty well and, and had kind of like a consistent, like it wasn't the biggest seller, but it just consistently churned was the D Tom flag transitioning into the American flag. Mm. And I actually saw one of the people waving an actual flag of that, that was, I mean, that was, that was very clearly copied from our design and yeah. that hurt. Oh man. Um, seeing some of the social media where people will find some of our old stuff. Um, and you know, they don't, they don't really see me cause you know, Ranger up's kind of not really in my public persona. Like you've got to know me a little bit on social mm-hmm. media and stuff like get it. But you know, Nick still has the Ranger underscore up our original Twitter handle and to read some of the bullshit that people will come out of the woodwork and just scream about like this is your guys' fucking fault and you're the ones that started it and fuck you guys and you know like you're bad for america and i mean i i I certainly think that some of the people that came after us took it a little too far not a little too far took it way too far Mm -hmm. um i certainly think that there there are um people that have purposely treaded on the ability to incense and divide and profit from it in that industry. But it doesn't change that I'm one of the guys that's responsible for our user 59 or um, freedom isn't free or, you know, our Patriot day shirt that, you know, for the anniversary of nine 11 that on the back of it says sometimes violence is the only answer. Um, I mean, I believe, you know, I, one of the things that I I say a lot and I've said for many, many years is listen, you know, punching someone in the face should never be your first, second or third option, but somewhere around four five or six, you know, it's just time to step outside. Right. Mm, You know, and I really, I I think the world would be a more civil place if more people adopted that quite frankly. Um, and if I like Jeremiah, uh, and I kind of went into this in a previous episode is, and he was specifically, we were talking about use of guns, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how a lot of people see, you know, what former military members have done and try and personify it out on the range or whatever, and right. just become idiots. Like honestly, kind of un- like the mill sim operator kind of guess. just completely unsafe. And, and there's not, I don't yeah. think anybody for the most part in the military that would say nobody should own guns. And the same could be said when it comes to like lifestyle branding, there's definitely a mm-hmm. certain message that comes with, you know, serving in the military and stuff like that and violence of action and like, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, just having to take the fight to the enemy and stuff like that. But, but people take those words too literally. 
unfortunately. Like people take it way too literally and they think that the words are their only option. They don't take the Mm -hmm. time to learn everything else around that and like what it means behind the message of the shirt, like don't tread on me or, um, you know, taking the fight to the enemy or sometimes violence is the only option. Like people don't understand the full context behind it. And unfortunately, that's just kind of the society we're in right now is that people don't take the time and the tactical pause to understand like there's a lot more behind this that you need to understand before you just take it word for word Mm -hmm. as gospel. Mm So one of my favorite shirts that we ever did, and I think it illustrates the point really, really well, um, was it was black flag. It had a pirate flag on the front and the back that says, there comes a time when every man must spit on his hand, hoist the black flag and begin to slit throats. And I always, even when we, when we put it out, because at this point, this was 2014, you know, 2013, 2014, 2015, when some of this was starting to pick up steam and you can start seeing it. Um, I would always say, I would always ask people when they got really hyped up about the shirt, like that's so badass, you know, cause at this point, Raindrops profiles out there and, you know, um, we've already linked up with the then article 15, now the black rifle coffee guys, and we're getting ready to do range 15. And, you know, people are just like super, super hyped. Like mm-hmm. this is like sort of apex thing. And I'd be like, Hey, let me ask you a question. What do you think the most important phrase, you know, the important part of that, of that saying is. And I knew everything I needed to know about that person because it was always, it was always one of two answers, begin to slit throats or there comes a time. Mm-hmm. And I'm, t- you know, the, the people that I want in my life were always the, there comes a time. Yeah. Right. And I think that far too many people that have embraced some of the ideology and, and some of the other things from that veteran lifestyle apparel space and they they ported it over to sort of that mill sim or that I want to be cool guy or this I'm going to use this to try and represent my idea of America, which I find intensely problematic. Is they're all the begin to slit throat begin to slit throats guys. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is, and, and Dan, I know you can talk to this just as well, probably on some levels even better than I can. There comes a point when you've been in the military long enough, or you've been on enough deployments, or you've been in enough dumb shit where you're really hoping you don't do anything that night, right? Like you just hope it goes out smooth. Whoever the asshole is that you got to throw a black bag over their head and flex cuff, you grab them and you just leave, right? Super quiet, super chill. Like, you know, I was listening to, you know, the episode that you guys did, Dan, you're talking about falling over the fence and like suddenly something comes out and they don't see you and just like, holy shit, right? With a rug. Um, Yeah. (laughs) You know, like you, you know, like, like you get to these points and I think the saddest thing and and the thing that even if I intellectually don't take responsibility for it, and I guess this is sort of maybe a good encapsulation of my feeling on all this, but I'm so intensely disappointed about, and I, and I still feel a little guilty about is that at the end of the day, the thing that I was trying to do to give an authentic representation to veterans and how we feel to the men and women, um, either in veteran community or the law enforcement community or these other places, um, that have the wisdom to understand that the most important part of that phrase is there comes a time has been perverted and has been taken over. And in my opinion, been destroyed by this much larger group of people who do not have skin in the game, who are not invested, who have not suffered, who have not sacrificed. And all they ever see is begin hoist the black flag and begin to slit throats. Yeah. Because, and and that to me, it's, it's like, 
And that's the intellectual war that happens with me sometimes ahead. I mean, I know we've talked about this not on the podcast, but it's like, what do you do with that? Right. Like on one hand, the people who do get it, like they get it and I'm cool with that. And I'm actually still really proud of it. But for every one of them, there's 20 of these other assholes that mm-hmm. don't get it and they're never going to get it. Kind of like what you were saying, Dan and Jeremiah was saying about like the tactical idiot who's just as likely to shoot himself in the head as he is to, you know, hit steel at 25 meters. Right. I think it's like, I think it's also the time of where we're at with society Mm -hmm. that, how should I say it? I think it's more like people go to the extreme lengths of violence to where they, they only see two options. And that's like walking around the streets strapped and presenting that it's like, what happened to just a good old ass beating? Like where you'd be yeah, humble, yeah. like you'd get in a fucking street fight, you'd get yeah. your ass beat, but then the guy would help you up and shake your hand and say, are we done? Are we cool. And then you're fucking yeah. having a beer with them like a day later. Yeah. Like yeah. that's where I feel like that time period ended. Well, like when I was yeah. growing up, it's like we were always getting in fist fights on Fridays after school up on some mm-hmm. dirt road out in the middle of the desert. And it was like this almost like wannabe fight club that we had where there'd be hundreds of people yeah. that would go. And it was kind of like. I feel like after that, it's gotten into this like super sensitive culture to where everything is like thrown online. They can talk shit behind a screen. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't know. It's like people take the extreme lengths of everything rather than just like solving it with a fucking punch. So I had, I, and Dan knows this a little bit about me, but I'm one of those people when, when there's a problem that I can't solve, I've got to do the research. Like I've got to like, I've got to understand something. Mm-hmm. And especially when, you know, cause the other thing that Ranger up was able to do is we were on the absolute leading pioneering edge of using social media and email and multi-channel marketing digitally and online to create a company and to mm-hmm. generate revenue. And, you know, so like people, you know, watch like the social dilemma on Netflix and freaked out. And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. duh. Like I knew what they were doing. I'm the end user asshole who figured it out best, faster than most people and made a whole bunch of money off of it. Like we've known that for know. a while. It's just people are now yeah. coming to terms with it. They're yeah. They're catching up to it. Right. Um, and so I went down this rabbit hole for about six months where I was just like, what the fuck is up with people and the whole thing on, on online. And what's really fascinating is if you go all the way back to the post civil war era reconstructionism phase of the United States, um, you had a lot of very, very biased newspapers and they called it yellow journalism mm. and the yellow journalists were entirely the you know, the Rush Limbaugh's, the Rachel Maddow's, right? But every every town, because you just read the newspaper, had five or six different newspapers on various levels of the continuum, on various <laughs> levels of sort of the yellow journalism. And it just inflamed the passions and inflamed the masses and pissed everybody off. And mm-hmm. people were where we are now at the local scale. And so like it's so this whole concept of people talking about keyboard warriors and be hiding behind a screen and like this, like the, the things being said and all this isn't new. Mm-hmm. Like we, we've, we've done this and ultimately yellow journalism really well led to sort of the journalistic standard of what, excuse me, you'd say the New York times was call it 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, I think that it's very fair to say that any news organization now is just trying to survive because of Facebook and some of these other pressures. So they're, they're going back to this yellow phase. I really think that you can see, the news media really in the past decade go back to a very similar sort of period in time, you know, where these flags are really planted and no one's really unbiased the way it used to be. Mm -hmm. Cause ultimately that became the check. 
The other difference now, and I think this is why you see things like QAnon, I think that you see these uh, radical conspiracy theories on both sides, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and a lot of this misinformation and everything is that the scale of yellow journalism in the past was always confined to a relatively local place. Like the best thing you could ever hope for was telegraph something and no one was going to telegram a seven, 800 word story, right? Like it would have taken too long. You know, maybe you can hop on a train and go from Chicago where I am right now to Milwaukee in a couple hours, right? And, and, and say something there, but you just didn't have the scale. You didn't have the reach. You didn't have this global thing, you know? Um, and so I think that that's, that's the huge core of it. I think that it's just the ability to, for me to sit down at my computer right now, type out a tweet or even just grab my phone off this instead and type a tweet and I'm going to reach 10,000 people. It's crazy. Right? Yeah. You know, and there are some people that with that tweet or with that Facebook post or with that, whatever are going to reach a million people. Mm-hmm. Right. Like these are, these are numbers that were impossible. It, it, you know, at any other scale in recorded human history. And that's where the danger of the computer is. And then the final thing, kind of your point also, Bo, is that because we gathered in pubs, we gathered in coffee shops, we gathered in bars to talk mm-hmm. out politics or, or, or salons or people's tea rooms or whatever back then, or even through, and there was a different level of decorum, right? And there was the, okay, you say that again, and we're stepping outside and I'm punching you in the face, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's on like shut up, you know, or show out. And I don't, I, I kind of, the more I think about it, I don't know if we've become so sensitive as a culture where that's not really an option anymore. I think that there's a certain sort of um, mythology around that because I've still certainly seen enough people in my life do that. Um, I mean, even in the past couple of years, it's mm-hmm. not maybe as common as I, I seem to remember it when I was younger, but also you know, my first bar experiences were like college and, you know, places where dudes were going to get in a fight anyway. Yeah. And then being in, being in Ranger up, like I was just in a very, very different position post, you know what I'm saying? So like, I don't know if I got the true sort of American picture of that, but, um, what it is, is that that final cherry on the top of this shit Sunday is people will say the most disgusting, divisive, um, horrible things that no one would ever say to someone else's face. Right. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah especially like some of the words I've seen, you know, or my, my friends that are, you know, either people of color or are gay or my Mm -hmm. female friends or whatever, like the things that I have read that someone said to them, no one would ever say that in a bar because they couldn't get to that person if they said it fast enough because someone else is already hitting it. Right. Like, like you cross that line so far that like the whole bar is going to beat your ass. It's not just the person you're talking to. And so, you know, I think that that's the final thing. And I think that, that's where people start getting empowered, but the sort of root of the problem, the sort of germination of it, this isn't the first time we've seen it in American history. Yeah, that's you know, true. We, we've seen it before. And that's to me, the most concerning thing is I don't feel like we're learning the lesson this time. That was going to be my point too, is what you said is people obviously act differently behind a screen than they do in person. So like you said, back, mm-hmm. you know, not even that long ago when people were, you know, at bars and salons and everything like that, talking about their differences they had a little bit more respect for each other because they knew that there could Mm -hmm. be a physical altercation. And most people, I would say almost probably 80% of people don't want to get in fights. Like they just don't, they want to try and prevent it. You know, any healthy human being is going to be like, I'm going to step away because I feel like it's getting heated. And I think that people just keep it going online. Look, if you want some late night entertainment, just fucking buy an Xbox, get online and listen to what (laughs) 15 year olds are throwing out every single second out of their mouth. 
and it is ridiculous for that reason 12 12 year olds 12 year olds 10 year olds dude like the language i'm like how the fuck do the parents not hear that like dude i'd be wringing my kid's neck i have not played games online unless it is one-to-one playing with a friend of mine since college on my xbox 360 for exactly that reason Mm -hmm. i was playing halo online and i'm trying to make my master chief do all the things that you do in the real world to clear rooms and you know like how you do all this <laughs> stuff and you just can't you, you gotta play it differently and i'm not particularly great at first person shooter games the, in, to begin with dan was really good and this back in the day i mean uh, yeah i mean i you, dan, i saw you smiling so you know what i'm talking about dan. like i'm trying to make him do like, and I, <laughs> I, i'm not that good i can't do it and some 12 year old from south korea is purposely hunting me okay like he is his sport is whooping my ass and then he's teabagging me mm-hmm. and then he's talking shit and i'm getting angrier and angrier and angrier and i just blurred out in my headset i swear to god you stupid little fuck wait until <laughs> you'll wait until whatever when virtual virtual reality happens and then you actually have to do it my way and not only am i going to kill you i'm going to get you with a knife kill i'm actually going to cut your fucking head off <laughs> shit <laughs> my roommate my roommate, who was an Air Force veteran, okay, so he actually has, you know, a level of understanding, pulls my headset off. He goes, Tom, you're done. And Cooper's like <laughs> six foot four, by the way, like six foot four, like 215, okay? Like, he's not the person I'm going to get into a fight with. He's like, you're done. And he turned off the Xbox. He unplugged it. He pulled it out <laughs> from the TV. And he's like, you can have this back when you are not playing online. <laughs> oh, and I have not played online video games since then. Like, I was so angry. Dude, it, it gets so it gets in your skin so fast. And and I think it like it's crazy. Just the racial slurs, everything that like kids mm-hmm. are saying. Yeah. Dude, it, it's it, insane. It's the same as social media. Like, you know, people always yep. say, don't, don't read the comments. Don't read the comments. That's the best I part. Have, I have not played with the chat feature enabled video games in I don't know since I joined the army because I I did exactly what you did like I started trying to play like I normally would clearing rooms taking corners mm-hmm. the way I should and just getting destroyed and I was like that's it and I would talk shit to people like I talked shit to people in in high school and yeah. stuff but uh and I was like you know what people are talking shit to me I can't do it anymore turned it off haven't mm-hmm. turned it back on yeah. since. Yeah, but it's literally been—I don't know, 50, however long, twelve years. Yeah, it's yeah. just crazy where those things are going. But um, Tom, I'm kind of curious because I know your background, and when I went to your house to take your photo, you're a huge Star Wars guy. I want to know how much massive you've invested into Star Wars Legos. Like how much money and how much time? <laughs> oh, dude. Um, because there's some big fucking collector's pieces you have in that house. I mean, thousands of dollars. Um, let's see the Millennium Falcon. So you can't see it, but the, millenn- the the biggest set that I have is the Lego Millennium Falcon, which will, at the time that it was released, it's since been usurped. It was the largest Lego set ever created. It's about twenty five pounds. Um, How many cost pieces me is that? Bu- uh, like thirty seven hundred. What the hell? I think I'd have to I'd have to look it up for sure. It's like thirty seven hundred. Uh, it was an $800 set. I bought it because I got a bonus at my job at the time. And that's how I spent it. Um, it was also right after my now ex-wife who Dan has met left. So it was also a great, like, fuck you to, to any potential thing that her and I were going through. Um, cause her and I had built some of these together. Um, 
And then uh, that took me about 36, 35, 36 hours to build. Jeez. Uh, that was a monster. Uh, the TIE fighter back there, that was like 200-ish. Same thing with Red 5. Um, both of those took me probably about six hours to build. Um, Over 50 well, hours, probably. Oh, no. Well, so, so then the next one right there, that's the Superstar Destroyer, which is an absolute like gangster set like the lego heads like me are like that motherfucker for for that one that one's really hard to find um that one that was like 500 took me and katie katie my ex-wife and i built that one together we probably had about 20 hours into that Gee, one especially wow. that was a newer one of the first sets um you can't see it in the rest of the room but i have a y-wing the Avengers Helicarrier, R2-D2, the B-Wing, Boba Fett Slave 1, the Snow Speeder, the Taunton 4, the Sandcrawler right there. So There's a bunch. I remember I don't know, seeing them. Call it, call it 3500 bucks, four grand maybe. And, <laughs> and over 50 know, hours probably. A week, you know, like you know, four, four days of my life maybe. Yeah. Like, so that's, did you glue I, the pieces together so they don't fall apart? No. So like in the really old sets, you have to do that. Yeah. Um, but these, they stick together actually pretty well. Like you okay. really have to, to kind of earn it if you want to um, knock them over. Oh, the Death Star. That one's not up here because it's too big, but I did put together the Death Star playset. That was another 20-ish hour build. That was a, That's that was insane. A Those were like my favorite Legos as a kid. I remember like yeah. always buying the Star Wars Legos. And having like like not as big as those ones, like not the collectors mm -hmm. ones, but even just the small ones that were like eighty dollars a box, hundred dollars a box. Yep. So yep. my problem is we, uh, we bought a few now, and uh, like mm -hmm. I have the slave one, and I think we ended up putting that together, me and my wife, in like mm -hmm. I don't know, less than an hour. Jeez. And she was like, and it was like I don't know, it, it's probably like nine, ninety or hundred bucks or something like that. Yeah. Oh, okay. oh the medium size yeah it's a smaller okay. one that's 20th anniversary yeah, yeah. Okay. and uh she Tom, was like Tom we can't shit. we can't buy these anymore <laughs> she's like we put them together too fast i was like but it's so much fun yeah there's yeah some, there's some rewarding so about it. that's that's why i buy the big ones honestly like you know as long as i have the money to do it is because it'll take me you know if, if i think i'm gonna build it in less than five hours i don't buy it anymore mm -hmm, because yeah. i just it's not it's, I don't want to say it's not worth it because it still is. I really take a tremendous amount of satisfaction from building them and I really love it. But it, there's just something kind of to your point, Dan, where it's like, I could have done something else with this. Like you start doing like the opportunity cost. Mm -hmm. Like, well, what else could I have done with the money? What else could I have done with the time? Whereas when you start putting that Millennium Falcon together and it comes in this huge, like the, the box that, you, that I pulled it out of the Crabtree Valley Mall in Raleigh, North Carolina, um, which, by the way, I got there at five in the morning and I was the third person in line to get mine. What the Just, hell? You want to hear? Our, yeah, for real. <laughs> That's uh, like them Best Buy people around. on Black Friday at four in the morning camping out. Yep. <laughs> yep. Wasn't fucking around, boys. But it actually had wheels on it. Like you like you had like the like the rolling cart, like your roller bag through the airport. Like that's how I got this to my car. Again, it was 25 Jeez. pounds. Like, you know, most Lego nerds can't lift that up. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can lie about it. Um so I'm on the wait list right now. Uh, my presence myself for now getting my new job is actually going to be the new Star Destroyer. The, well, it's not new. It's older. But if that comes back in stock on Lego, that's 700 bucks, and I'm going to buy that. And that'll, awesome. that'll take me a while. And also, like, 
shameless admittance. So my, my girlfriend has, has a nine-year-old daughter and I, the way that I got in good and sucked up to her was first, I had built the Endor Ewok village mm-hmm. and I gave it to her. And then for Christmas, um, through one of the, the veteran organizations that I, that I work with merging vets and players that I'm a part of, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a part of that organization MVP. Um, one of the members uses Legos to like calm down as PTS, PTS. That's and cool. so they happen to know Will Arnett from Lego masters. And so they gifted the show gifted MVP members, a couple of sets mm-hmm. like Lego sets. And so, um, one of them is this really cool it's star Wars and they're droids and the droids like you can build the droids and then you can code them in an app and make the droids move around. So that's cool. Her and I built the Legos together and now she gets to like code it and play with it. So she's learning like STEM and stuff through it. So like that, like that's awesome. my, my shameless sucking up and, and bonding is, is through Legos with her. So, um, I think JC who works yeah. in MVP did tell us that story about how yeah. they donated a ton of Legos. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know they're a great organization. So that's, that's cool to hear that you're connected to that. And then yep. I'm curious. JC and I served together. Really? Yeah. I, I didn't realize we were, that. Uh, yeah, dude. So JC was the S3 heir and I was a school's NCO at regimental headquarters after I hurt my shoulder. So, um, and actually he was in the talk the, with the whole Pat Tillman thing when I was there too, we were on the same tour and we were both working staff together. Mm. So, wow. um, I know him really, really well. And actually, cause he went to Iraq, um, and I didn't cause I was hurt. I was one of like, I don't know, a dozen dudes in the entire regiment, I think, that didn't go over for that because I was busted up. And uh, I worked with the family readiness group. So it trips me out when I see his kids now Mm -hmm. because I knew his kids when they were like four and they were like tiny, you know? Yeah. And now I see his kids and they're monsters. I mean, they're all division one athletes. I mean, like they're like their old man, like JC's huge. Mm -hmm. He's a he's a big athletic dude. And it's just like. (laughs) <laughs> I remember, you know, like I, it's kind of like, you know, they're not my kids, but I still do have a little bit. He's like, I look at him. I remember you. you, you yeah. Exactly. Oh, like, I see the pictures and that's how I think of them. Cause it's like, you know, now there's monsters. Now they're, they're as big as their old man. It'll be, it'll be fun so, for yeah. all of us to go up to New York here soon and visit them. JC yeah, up I'm there. Um, so I want to get into kind of some of your travel. Cause obviously, you know, that I just got back from my long road trip of documenting Mm -hmm. and photographing veterans for this book that we're working on. But I'm curious to hear, Dan was kind of letting me know that you travel the world and went to like a ton of different countries. What was that like for you? Um, so I I would say I'm proud of myself. So like the, the road trip that I mentioned where magic eight ball made all the decisions for me. And I was, I had a complete nervous breakdown. Um, and I mean, I I don't use that term lightly. Um, and I don't want to be, um, insensitive to anyone else's mental health journey and stuff like that. But like, I literally, I I should have been under the care of someone at that point in my life. Like I was Mm -hmm. very, very, very bad, um, in my own head. And I look at my journal that I, that I kept in the way I sort of rewrote that story out, um, to like help me sort of heal. And I'm like, what the fuck was wrong with me? Um, the trip around the world actually was the culmination of me realizing that I needed to take a break. So, um, in 2015, I left Ranger up. Um, just Nick and I had very different ideas on how we sort of wanted to run the business, um, where we wanted to go. So the last, so the 31st of December, 2015 was my last day there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
never took, I, I really never took that personally other than like maybe a couple of like, you know, really sort of shitty internal monologue moments. It's just, we, we both said different ideas. There's, that happens in business, right? That happens, yeah. you know, sometimes people go different ways. Um, him and I still talk regularly. Like I, I have so much love in my heart for that dude. Um, but it was just, it was that time. The other, the other undercurrent to all of it was that my now ex-wife, um, it was starting to sort of be figured out and sort of like the rumor has it to borrow an Adele term that she was doing some stuff that she wasn't do, wasn't supposed to be doing, which fun fact turns out that she was. Um, and so a year after I left Ranger up, she left me mm. for another guy. Like, I mean, and it was, it was bad. Um, and so you have this like 12 month period where, um, you know, that's going on and now I'm like, Oh my fucking God. Right. Like, you know, it was like going through, it was like going through two separations, you know, really totally. in a year, like two divorces in a year. Um, I put my heart and soul in that company. I had, you know, when I had left Ranger up, you know, her and I had sat down and had this, this conversation where I'm like, Hey, um, you've sacrificed a lot for me. You've sacrificed a lot for us to try and do Ranger up. It didn't work. Like I'm here, you know, this is going to be the year of you. This is going to be, as I said, the year of Katie. And, um, she was already one foot out the door. Like I can look back and like, she was already like planning. Um, and so at the same time, one of the things that I had done sort of in service of that was taking a job that inside the first three months I knew was a bad fit. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't like my boss. Um, it was a corporate job right after working for myself and being an entrepreneur. Um, I had, I had, I had done it because the CEO of the company had been a mentor of mine, um, at the time. And it was, it was, it was a really bad fit. It was a startup inside of this major company, like a new division. The business plan was bad. Um, the assumptions they made and how they could grow and how they succeeded were really off. And it was really clear pretty quickly that they were off. Um, but one, I had that fight on to fight on to the ranger objective and complete the mission, though I'd be the lone survivor mentality. And two, you know, I told her, we're, you know, I'm going to have the stability and I'm going to do this. And, I, you know, like uh, I'm going to do this for the family, you know, health insurance and the whole nine yards. Um, and so then she left and I'm stuck in this job that I hate. I'm, you know, like I felt really, really trapped. And the final straw was. Um, my boss had not um, hadn't done the num- the sales numbers, which if you've worked in any organization where you have to sell, like the head, the head guy says, this is what I think we're going to do. And this is how we're going to grow. Mm-hmm. And you know, he didn't do any of it. Oh, he didn't do none of it. And I just happened to be at corporate headquarters because I, I did business development. I also did marketing for, for our division on, a, on like a marketing trip, like working, like planning marketing stuff. So in the span of like 24 hours, I did the numbers, like just raw. Like I'm like, here's your 80% solution. This is the best that I can do because there had been a board meeting that was coming up. Mm-hmm. And rather than sort of be, I don't even want to say grateful, just like, oh, great. Like we still get to keep going. It really upset him, it really pissed him off. And um, I should have been careful with, more careful with my words uh, around a project that I had been put on. Um, I, and also in, in, in fairness, the situation, I let that go to my head a little bit. I got a little cocky, um, but he saw a little bit of daylight and he used it to get me fired on the day that I was supposed of the awards banquet for the company. I was supposed to get the leadership award for the firm, like Jeez. just straight up corporate, straight up corporate hatch job. Right. Um, 
And so now, so like I've lost my company, you know, the company that I, that I was so invested in, I lost my marriage. And now I just lost this job that as much as I didn't like it, I am trying so hard to make it work. Right. I'm like, I'm gonna, and I was like, that was February of, um, that was February of 2017, no, 2018, February, Mm -hmm. 2018. And I'm like, all right, you know what? I'm done. Like, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm done. And I'd always wanted to travel the world. And so I'm like, you know what? This is the perfect time for me to get out of all of this. So my, uh, my divorce was finalized at the beginning of May. Um, it, all the paperwork came through, um, which just because you guys in the state of North Carolina, like I'll never forget this, like your marriage certificate in North Carolina is really nice. And it's this beautiful piece of paper and it's really thick and it's all colorful and stuff. And um, when you get your divorce decree, they just photocopy a white eight and a half by 11. And it's like, and they hand it to you and it's like the saddest thing on earth. Like it really oh, is geez. like just awful. Um, I, I had a 30 liter backpack. I went ultralight. I'm sorry, 40 liter backpack ultralight. So anything that I couldn't carry in that backpack, I didn't take with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I hopped the plane. Uh, I started in Lisbon, Portugal, and I only started in Lisbon, uh, because it was the farthest West that you could be on continental Europe. Mm. Instantly loved Lisbon. Lisbon was one of the highlights of the trip. Like to this day, I tell everyone, like, if you've not been to Lisbon, Portugal, and you want to go to Europe, that's where you go. Um, and then for almost five months, I went all the way around the world. And in the end, I flew back to Chicago, which, cause my parents were, were taking care of my dog, Athena, um, uh, from Tokyo, Japan. So the only way that I could have gone any farther East is if I had gone way, way, way South to New Zealand, mm-hmm. which just wasn't really in the cards. Um, and yeah, I went all the way around the world. That's cool. So do you think Lisbon so, was your favorite because it was like your first initial, like kind of your mental state was like, I'm here, you know, I'm like in this different country and like it was, you're all hyped about it. Kind of like when you start a trip and then towards the tail end, you're like, all right, I'm ready to be home. Um, n- you know, maybe a little bit, but, but what's like, I, I think part of it is, is I really didn't expect that trip to quote unquote start mm-hmm. until I got to Spain. Like, I was so hyped to go to Spain, yeah. right? Like that was where, so mentally I, I really only went to Lisbon and I'm not joking. It's like, well, I want to go as far, I want to start as far West as I can within reason. And I want to go as far East as I can. Like I want to go all the way around the world when this is all done. That's cool. That was like, that's how I ended up in Lisbon to start. So Lisbon super surprised me. Uh, it's, it's got like the San Diego to me, like be, you know, comparison, like laid back beach vibe to it. Mm-hmm. People are super friendly. Um, cause I'd gotten there in the spring. Like one of the first things that I did is I picked an orange off of a orange tree that was in the courtyard of a church. So I was eating the Pope's oranges, which, you know, as someone who's not Catholic <laughs> and not particularly religious, uh, you know, got a little bit of a chuckle from that. But yeah. Plenty of oranges. Um, yeah, you know, you know, the, the Lord's bounty, it's blessed me, you know, but, um, and it was just, everyone was super friendly. Um, I had the craziest thing. I went to the castle of St. George, which is a big prominent, um, you know, fort and everything. And through the, the weirdest, curious quirk of fate, I ran into someone I went to college with only wow. I didn't, I like, like, so we passed, like we, we passed each other at the castle 
And about 15 minutes later, I get a text message from Elma. And she's like, she's like, this is going to sound crazy as hell, but you're not in Portugal by any chance, are you? And I'm like, <laughs> like, how did you know, you know, like, how did you know that? Right. Like, I mean, there's just no way, like I haven't talked to you in a decade. And so, um, you know, she had, she'd been working in HR in Switzerland and was just on vacation. It was on holiday. So it was like, so her and I got like a glass of wine and I got to like, sort of like this like college reminiscence thing with someone that, you know, I'd been friends with, you know, she had been at the time dated a, a friend of mine pretty seriously. And, you know, so like we caught up and um, it, it's beautiful and it's just, it's such a chill vibe. That's and I cool. think that that probably, you know, the, the memory of randomly running into someone that I really, you know, I, I thought was a very cool person mm-hmm. um, certainly helped, but I was so not expecting anything from Lisbon and to have that, it was just, just to be the place that it was. And like, there was this, there's this cafe that maybe I could find it again, I think, but it was outside of the tourist area. And I just sat down under this the shade tree in the middle of the day and i had an espresso with one of those little tiny like european cookies mm-hmm. that you just got to go to europe for yeah dunk um, and all that yeah, oh, yeah. And just like i must spend an hour at that table having two espressos and just chill you know yeah. and it was like the the weight of everything started coming off and um you know uh, through that trip um you know one of my best friends in the world i met in bali that's cool. You know, just randomly. Um, actually I was, I was text messaging back and forth with, uh, with her today. Um, you know, I, it was just this adventure and it was this thing that as I was going through it, I kept a journal and, and I, I did some writing and I, I just started sort of realizing all of these things that I, um, hadn't really attended to, like I hadn't really taken care of myself. I hadn't really acknowledged how some of these things had hurt and, you know, um, just, just a lot of buildup, like even all the way back to college on some levels, like even the way, all the way back to that bad transition I had in the military, I finally kind of came to terms with, with some of this. And, mm-hmm. um, it was, it was great because, you know, I, even if you, if you watch, like I moved super fast through Europe, I didn't spend more than two or three days in anyone's spot. And, you know, by the end of it, I'm spending, you know, two and a half weeks in Myanmar, um, which, watching what happened to that country broke my heart because I've been there and I mm. love that country. Mm. Myanmar is the people, not the government, the government sucks. Like even when you're there, they're go- it's one of the, it's one of two places that I actually always carry my passport with me just in case. Yeah. You're like normally like you, you lock your passport in the hostel, your, your hostel safe, your hotel room safe, or whatever. Like Myanmar, I knew better. Like that was on me the entire time because I just knew the government, if they decided to fuck with me, it was bad. But, um, I love Myanmar. Oh, and just to see that happen, it just, it honestly breaks my heart. It really does. God, uh, I love that though. Place. Like that, that feeling of, uh, of traveling alone and like, especially mm-hmm. when you're going through like a really weird spot in your life, how much you yeah. kind of learn, you know, whether it's a short mm-hmm. trip or it's like months, you know, sometimes years yeah. for people. It's like, I don't know, maybe it's cause I'm just getting off of my high from that road trip, you know, the book that we're oh. all working on, but it's, I have to do it on a regular basis because of how therapeutic it really is. Well, and I, so my last tattoo, let's see if I can make this happen. I'm probably not gonna be able to do that. Um, It's, I got that in Vietnam right after I got done scuba diving and it says relax, breathe, which is like kind of like my, my life mantra. And I totally stole the idea from Ryan holiday, the author who I've met a couple of times because he's got his life mottos written on his forearm, tattooed on his forearms. And I, I, it's actually funny, like I even messaged him. I'm like, yo, by the way, I'm stealing your idea out here in Vietnam and he got a kick out of it. 
<laughs> um, you know, so yeah, it was, it was needed. And it's on some levels, it's something that, you know, the next year, um, I went to Ibiza, Spain with friends mm-hmm. for a week, you know, actually one of my friends I met in Bali and some other people, and, you know, it killed me this year that I couldn't do it. And I'm just hoping that, you know, COVID let's, you know, is, is done enough. So by the end of the year, I can, you know, go somewhere and I learned how to scuba dive on that trip. So I'm an advanced under or an advanced open water diver now. And, That's cool. Um, yeah, it was great. How, I needed it. How long were you gone? Like total time? Almost five months. Jeez. Wow. Just, just, and actually, so, so I got to give, I got to give my mom shouts to my mom on this. This is great. Um, so they agreed to, to, to watch my dog and everything. And, um, she's like, when do you think you're going to be back? And at first I'm like, you know, I don't know. I'll go for like, you know, three, maybe four months, you know, like, I don't know. Like I, I kept it open-ended. So she asks the first time at like the beginning of August, and I'm like, ah, oh, I'm not sure. And then she asks again, like, like, you know, the middle of August, I'm like, oh, I'm not sure. She asks one more time and I still don't give her a good answer. So the fourth time she asks, she's like, Hey, um, you know, cause at this point I think I'm in Cambodia, maybe like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, pretty far east like you know i'm i'm getting there right but i'm also slowing down because it's you know and i've cut places out because it's no longer this race to say that i've conquered all these countries right it's like i'm really i'm having a good time and i'm starting to like sort of develop and really sort of try and get in touch as much with like super local stuff rather than you know just be a flyby yeah and uh she's like you know uh do you think that you could be done and it's like i don't know it's the fifth sixth of september maybe She's like, do you think you could be back by like the 21st of September? I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I, I very casually like, yeah, you know, I think that that could be whatever. There's a, there's a 13-hour time difference, right? But it's, it's in reverse. So it's evening in Cambodia and it's the morning mm-hmm. in Chicago. So I don't think any of it. I go to bed. I wake up and there's an email from my mom to my entire family announcing my welcome home party that Saturday, the 23rd. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> And you let's just say, like, well, say you missed it. <laughs> I better be home. <laughs> Shit. It's like, you know, like, I, you know, it's like, I'm just like, I got back and I'm like, that was really well played. She goes, your mom's not a dummy, Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. She knew. I'm, I'm kind of excited. Uh, I'm going to wrap it on this topic, but I'm excited for the people like listening that don't know. Obviously, uh, you got involved with this book that we're making. And mm-hmm. I know Dan and I are super excited to have you be the well, writer behind it i was gonna, and, i was gonna say if i could say a, a little bit about that so like when me and Bo started this book and we started thinking about you know who who do we start reaching out to oh yeah that's and i was and i was very like specific about this like yes i know a lot of people but you know i was like well do i want to reach out to this person no do i want to reach out to this person but honestly top of my list was i was like i need to reach out to tom at some point mm-hmm. i was like i need to reach out to tom I was like, I know he's done so much. He would know exactly like where we should go with this. He knows the advice we should, you know, should take in this endeavor. Um, And I was just like, if nothing else, he's at least going to point us in the direction to be successful. So I was like, we, I just got to reach out to Tom and talk to him. And what was interesting is when I was having that conversation with Bo, that very same day you were on the podcast um big daddy energy yep. and i listened to that and i was like dude this is exactly what i want to talk to him about i could i couldn't believe it i was like this is literally exactly what yeah. like i'm i need to call tom about 
is what you discussed on that podcast. And I was like, it's just, it's meant to be. So I, I reached out to you like that same day, I think. And then you, you messaged back and I remember that too, because you there. came in, I was working on my computer and Dan told me about that. And then I obviously had no idea who you were. And he mm -hmm. was telling me all about like a backstory, like kind of catching me up, you know, through his excitement of wanting to get in touch with you about it. So it just happened to like flow so perfectly and you making the connections yeah. with various people and organizations that have put us in further contact with veterans for the book. It's been really cool, but I kind of want to know more on your side, like what you're most excited for. Like, you know, is it writing the stories? Is it kind of like, I want to know kind of what, what's going through your mind. Cause I'm only thinking I'm more on the creative side. So I, I, I guess I would go back to part of what we talked about earlier when we were talking about business, right. Mm -hmm. You know, and you've got to sort of marry these, these, the, the sort of tangible and, and the creative, right. Um, so I, the, the thing that I am most excited about is the ability to tell what I think are truly authentic veteran stories to start off with. Um, part of why we worked so hard at Ranger Up um, and part of the reason that, you know, like what I was talking about where sometimes this really stings for me is I feel like we are, it is, it's 2021 and we are still stuck on two basic veteran narratives and we've added a third that's even worse. Mm -hmm. The first one is we're Captain America at the ball game, right? We are, you know, the monkey clanging the symbol, selling the war bond, so to speak, throw out the first pitch and wave at the sporting event and then we go away, right? Like yeah. we're, you know, we're that. The other one is that we're this, this ticking time bomb of PTS that is unemployable, right? That, that doesn't understand that never mind all the jargon that's in your everyday business, you know, but because, you know, you know, we say Warno or Frago or Op Order, you know, we're, we're the vernacular problem, right? Um, and, and I think that both of those, those narratives have never gone away. They've all, they've, they have been there since 9 11. Mm -hmm. They have been there since I got out in 2004 off active duty. They've never gone away. Yeah. And now we have this third one and we talked about it a little bit is the vet bro, right? Mm -hmm. It's the, those first two have now built up for 20 years at this point. And there's a group of guys and girls that are frustrated and they are tired and they are sick of it. And so they're like, fuck you guys, you know, fuck you on the left, fuck you on the moderate right. We're mm -hmm. going to go way over here. You're with us. You're against us. And, you know, I've had this conversation with vets from all over the world, really, and, you know, in, in different places in life. And it's like, there's no one in this world that is more snowflakey and more sensitive than this 10% of my community. Right. Yeah. And like, that's what we, that's, that's how we're seen. And you know, and, and we've talked about this off air a lot, but honestly, I, I think, and, you know, I've said this to you, Dan, so I hope I'm not embarrassing you, but like the veteran story we need to be telling is actually Dan. I mean, yeah, for, for, for legit, I mean, as honestly, like someone who went in and served their country honorably and got out and, you know, went and got their degree and bettered themselves. And then they went out and got the job in this field they're passionate about mm -hmm. and they're growing it. And they're like, you want to know what? That's not enough. Now I want to start a business. Now I want to help and impact my community. Yeah. Like that's what the greatest generation did. The greatest generation wasn't the greatest generation because they went and kicked Hitler's ass. 
Like that's commendable. That's awesome. That's like all the things that needed to happen in that time period in American history. They're the greatest generation because they came home and they became the school teachers. They became the shop owners. They became these these integrated woven members of their community and of their society. And people respected that. Mm -hmm. They took the bounty of leadership experience and knowledge and stick to itness and devotion and true service and then reapplied it to their community. And what's really sad to me is most veterans that I know in the macro are actually still doing that. That's what's happening. It's just, that's not the story we want to talk about. Yep. Mm-hmm. We're obsessed with this, this, this cool guy operator, um, pew pew motherfucker you know, Mm -hmm. who also looks really good waving, waving his hand in a uniform or, or, you know, his, I served baseball hat or t-shirt and not about the dude that's just down the street. That's, you know, the, the manager at, you know, the, the local factory or the, the coder that's, you know, teaching kids how to code, you know, because he believes in STEM. Like, so to tell that real story. And honestly, Bo, this is like when Dan and I was first explaining it to me, you know, and then I got, and then I looked up your work. It's like, and to have someone like you who is such a talented photographer Mm -hmm. who is so capable of capturing, like, you know, you sent me the, the, the photo that you want to, you know, that we might use for me. And I, and I sent it to my girlfriend and she's like, Oh my God. Mm -hmm. She's like, this is amazing. Like this, you know, like this is, this is just, you're just like, I knew he was good. I've seen some other stuff, you know, or the, or the one you sent me of General Farrader because I, you know, I know one of my Mike, favorites. Like, Holy shit! Like, yeah. I'm like, wow. I love that photo um, of him. Yeah. So like that's that's the thing that's really exciting to me to start because it's the right time, you know, with mm-hmm. this anniversary. I feel like we have the right people, you know. Um, for this, you know, for this to be the brainchild of two lifelong friends who um, have very different but very complementary skill sets mm-hmm. um, to come together. Like, I, I mean, I've said this to you guys, but I really do mean it. And I want to make sure the public understands is how deeply I believe this. I'm so honored to even be a part of this, that you guys even asked me to be in it. Never mind that we got to this point where it's like, well, let's work together on it. Yeah. Um, you know, and you know, forever. My, I think my favorite story personally about this entire process is going to be that I got after Dan pitches it to me and he's like, Hey, do you know anybody? And I'm like, do I, I know some, <laughs> I know some, I know some people you need to talk to. And I start yeah. like listing list, off all these names. He gets the deer in the headlights thing. Cause I mentioned general Votel. He's like, what? I'm like, no, it'll be fine. I go besides if he bucks at it, then I'll call his wife. She owes me a favor. You know, like, you know, and he's Dan like, Dan got pumped the, about that. <laughs> right. He's like, what the fuck, man? Like, you know, and then I get so excited that the chief of staff for the veteran museum and memorial that, that, uh, general Farrader is the CEO of is this awesome guy named Bill Butler. And so Bill was the first guy I wanted to talk to just cause obviously implications think. I got so excited. And, and Dan, I know you remember this. I can see you smiling already. I forgot to put a subject line in the email. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so like, eh, this is great. You know? So, um, you know, like, I mean, that's just the, the, the level of, of, of excitement to it that I have and, and mm-hmm. what I'm pumped up for. And I want to, I want to be able to do those stories, um, you know, the justice that they deserve and be able to show 
who these men and women are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love that the the roster that we have so far is all branches. It's all ranks. Yep. It's, 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 it's men and women that have had a pretty smooth transition, you know, and there's men and women that are really suffering, you know, that, mm. that this is not a, oh, well, let's let, you know, let's, let's be happy and let's, you know, like, no, like this is, this is who we are. This mm-hmm. is our community. Um, you know, for every, you know, for every, you know, Nate Boyer or, you know, I know some people say it about me, even if I roll my eyes at it, Talamenta you know, there's someone else that's in the middle of Ohio that I'm not going to use their name until we get it done, just because I don't want to be disrespectful, you know, that, you know, that no one's ever heard of, right, that no one has any idea that they serve, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for every, you know, for every, um, you know, Mike Farader, who retired as a, as a major general, you know, there's the, there's the Dan Blakely who left as a spot leader, you know, who, who did their one tour and, and got out. and so uh, that's, that's so exciting to me. And the other thing is, is that I know we believe this, but I, 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 and we've talked about this, but I really believe this is also a great opportunity to start a conversation and to start changing those three narratives. Because I think that honestly, one of my opinions about American society is there is this guilt around veterans mm-hmm. because so few of us, like the most charitable percentage of the american population that you can say has served over the past 20 years is about three percent yeah you can make a case and you really you know if you want to start sort of like subsecting the available population you know you want to start doing it you can you can drop that number pretty quickly like you really can Mm -hmm. um depending on how you you choose to to do the demos and you know I, I would have to double check the, I mean i've been meaning to but i'd have to double check the math on this but i believe what i remember is that the sort of USAA bucket of the American population, meaning the person who served or their immediate family that served, whether it's post 9-11 or wherever, is only about 40, 45%. Oh, wow. wow. So the majority of Americans don't have a touch point to someone who served anymore. Like we're no. not understood, right? And I don't know who who that's, whose fault that is, quote unquote, or or whatever, but I think this is such a great project with, such a perfect visual representation and medium of your photographs, Bo, and their, their words um, that I, you know, so, I mean, I've, I've, it's taken me a while to fall asleep at nights is after I've been listening to these recordings, I've been transcribing everything and, and looking for the, for the holes in it that I need to ask, like, you know, what dates did they serve? Cause like, they'll say they went to OIF, but they didn't give a date or, mm-hmm. You know, there's sort of a, a weaker answer to a question than someone else had that makes me realize I'm going to have to follow up with them and, you know, and making sure that I use their words and their voice as much as possible and not my writer voice. Um, it's kind of daunting, not kind of, it is daunting. And it's, um, it's really, really important. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I don't, um, you know, and, and I mean, I've, I've told you guys this, but I really think that, um, I think people want to hear these stories. I think that this is the perfect mechanism to start a conversation, start a new conversation and continue that conversation moving forward. Um, Which on some levels is scary. Like if I'm going to be really, um, I guess as sort of honest and as vulnerable as I can for me, um, I didn't want to come back to the military stuff Mm -hmm. after Ranger up. I really didn't. I was like, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I had a brief, 
I, I did a brief sort of contract slash hybrid job trying to sell in the military space right after I got back from traveling. And I said, fuck this. I never I said, ne- I'd actually use the word never to myself. I said, I'm never going to work in this industry again. I am never going to be a part of this again. I'm so sick of it. I'm so tired of, of being Sisyphus and rolling this rock up the hill only to watch it roll back down on me. I'm like, I'm done. I've had it. I quit. Um, and you know, now, you know, it's like, it's like sometimes, you know, like what they say, Jurassic Park life finds a way. Well, sometimes like you're meant to do something, yeah. you know, and I, I really believe that I just wasn't working with the right people. I wasn't around the right people for me. And again, this is just me personally. Um, and so that, to have the opportunity to work with the two of you and, and to also <clears throat> tell the stories that we're, that we're going to tell and to interact with the people that we've interacted with and just the opportunities from some of those conversations to, again, continue to create these stories, to tell these stories, not create them and, and to put them forward and to change that conversation. I mean, it's, it's scary as fuck. You know, I think I'd rather, you know, go into a hot room knowing it's a hot room some days, but it's, you know, it's, it's the mission, man. And uh, I mean, to, to the point where I flat out told my flat out told my brand new boss, I haven't even had my new job for three weeks. Um, and I know I told you guys this, but it, it's true. I, like I'm negotiating like all the stuff that you do with a new job, right? When you're, you know, and I'm the director of marketing. So it's, it's that type of job. And I said, I'm putting this on front street and I want you to know, I just agreed to work with two of my, two of my buddies and we are creating this book and I am going to need to use my PTO to, you know, you know, travel for it to, you know, to get some of these stories, to promote it, to do like, do these other things like the weekend around nine 11, mm-hmm. like that Friday and that Monday, you're, it goes in my deal that I get it off, like on the front end, along with a uh, weekend in June. Cause it's my parents' 40th anniversary. Um, you know, I'm like, I'm like, and like, you got to understand this matters to me. And I was really kind of nervous, like, cause you know, some companies don't really want you, even if it's your own time, they don't really want you doing stuff like that. Yeah. Right. And, uh, he was like, dude, that's great. It's like, tell me more about it. I'm like, it's a cool what? boss. It's like, yeah. He's, he's like, no, I want to hear more about what you're doing. Like, I think that people having pursuits like this is great. Like you need to have something more than just your job. This sounds incredible. Tell me about it. So we spent like, we like paused the negotiation, like hit the timeout button for like 15 minutes for me to explain it to him. So that's cool. Again, kind of that yeah. other thing of feeling like you're in the right place. Yeah. Um, and just another one of those sort of things where it's like, yeah, this is, this is what it's meant to be, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so that's, you know, I, I feel like I went super long winded on that no, well, no. more so than I normally do. I apologize, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm so it's okay. excited like, for the world to hear these. I, I think, uh, we're all incredibly excited for this. And oh, yeah. it, like the first, I think the first weekend that Bo, for one, Bo's, you know, to his own detriment, and I'll tell him this even on the podcast, and I've told it to him on his face. He's he he doubts a lot of times or is worried about a lot of things that you know isn't lined up perfectly. Oh, and definitely, I'm like, dude. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about it. It's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the first weekend he went and met with some veterans, he called me on the way back, and he was like, "Dude, no matter what we do, I just met with two veterans, and it's like we can't fail." we we have to do this project Mm -hmm. and i think Mm -hmm. we all have you know all three of us have the same mentality and for you know both both credit to come to that point so early too um i think is the only way that something like this is possible putting our own you know blood sweat tears and 
finances behind it to make this happen. Like, yeah. it it's it's a lot, and uh, but I, I I couldn't think of two better people to do it with. To be completely honest, it, it's kind of like um, when I traveled around and like I've, you know, even those two. It's funny. I've cried twice on this journey, and I'm not a big emotional guy. Like I, I'm horrible at it ask any of my exes i bury that shit deep like it does not come up and that's why people are like hey i'm fucking out of your life because you can't show your emotions properly and that's something that i've learned to to grow with and, and mature with but it came to a realization that during that that same time frame when i went to visit the two veterans in virginia is where i started um i broke down in tears in my car because i was so happy like i just felt like i'm, I'm doing something great i can't fail even these two people Dan being a third, I just can't fail him. So this has to happen. And I don't know how it's going to happen financially, but we're going to find a way because, and and I started, that's more like, you know, that's more where I, my my head starts turning in ways where it's like, I start more so thinking about, I don't know the veteran community. I'm just barely scratching the surface by just visiting, you know, 35 Mm -hmm. people so far out of like the almost 60, 65 that we have in this book. And it's like, I guess it's almost like me putting so much pressure on myself because I want to make sure that I do these men and women the right service Mm -hmm. and that their stories get blasted across America to where people want to help, you know, support this book and purchase it and they give it to their friends and family, or maybe they've lost their son or their daughter overseas and they want to look at it. I just have such a, a wild imagination for how this can go. And I don't want to get my expectations up, but I'm just, you know, I'm passionate about it. I, I think one of the things that I learned, um, starting at Ranger up, but then before I just took this job, I was at Google is that the idea of scale where like Google, Google, I learned to Google cloud. Um, they don't want to mess with a company unless it makes at least a billion dollars. Like it's not worth it. Okay. (laughs) Like crazy. you only want the top 1% of firms in the world. I mean, you know, but they're Google, they can do that. Right. At Ranger Up, everything was about like as close to a one-to-one relationship as we could possibly get. And we would burn ourselves out for it. One of the things that I, I love about this project and I, I love about what we're doing is it's way closer to that. And, you know, I I believe in the, in the ripples and the pond effect, especially for something like this, especially for, you know, like the podcast I did with, with Dan Charlton that were, were, you know, where Dan Blakely is like, Oh my God, like my instinct was right. I got a fucking call him right now. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, these are, these are the things that like happen. Cause the other thing about it and, and Dan, will tell you this, Bo, um, is there is no community that I have ever been around or been a part of that smells bullshit faster and embraces authenticity more quickly than the veteran community. Mm-hmm. No one, yeah. none. I mean, and the thing I know that we have in this group and we have in this project and I recognize instantly was authenticity in spades. And you can't, especially for something like this, you just can't bullshit that. And I'm not saying this like kiss our own asses or tutor our own horns or for the listeners being like, yeah, motherfuckers, we're badasses pre-order, you know, whenever the fuck we decide that that date's going to be right. Yeah. Like, it's not that it's that, that, that these are, our community has been, I, I believe, has been dying, has been wanting so desperately for an authentic representation mm-hmm. of who it is and what we are. 
and what we've become. And, you know, one of the comments that I had, you know, when I, when I finally saw my portrait and it shocked me a little bit and, you know, my girlfriend kind of brought me back. I'm like, I look old. And she goes, no, she goes, you don't look old. You look distinguished. She goes, but someone finally captured who you are in this moment and not the, the person that, you know, at least in the military community, when it came to Ranger Upper, or that sort of persona that you wore. She's mm. like, Tom, this is who you are now. Yeah. And I was like, <sighs> deep. I mean, that was like, that was, it was, no, it really wasn't. Like, yeah. that was five minutes before we got on this podcast. Like, she's, you know, she's texting me a couple more times. So it's like, I'm still kind of marinating on that. Right. But it's like, that's also Farrader's picture. Right. That's, that's every, also these stories. every single person. There's no, right. And it's all shot on film. There's no Photoshop wrinkles out. It's like right. literally just raw photos. Right. And it's, and, but it's also in the stories. Right. Yep. And like, that's why I'm so, that's, I'm, and like the way that Dan was explaining this and the way that you guys arrived at the idea to do this, you guys didn't arrive to, to do this because you wanted to like cash, you know, cash checks and, you know, those stupid fucking, you know, dollar bill guns and shit. It was like, <laughs> we need to tell a story. Yeah. And we need to tell the story of our community. And that's what I got behind so quickly. And the thing is, is that's what's happening. And it's like, you want to know what? Yeah. You know, we got to sell enough books so we don't lose our shirts. Right. Like we got to, mm-hmm. we got to sell enough books so I can buy a couple of Lego sets and, you know, Dan can feed his kid. Right. I mean, like, yeah. you know, I kind of want a horse somewhere down the line, but that's like 10 yeah, years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Like there's something like, you know, there's always that, that consideration. Yeah. And, you know, I think that every American understands capitalism and all but the crazy ones, you know, choose to embrace it on some level because mm-hmm. that's who we are. So, but it's not, it's not about that. It, it really isn't. And that's the thing about this project that's just so fucking exciting to me and just so crazy is that those stories are there. And, and, and I, and I, and I really believe there's this thirst because I've traveled all over this country. I still do it. Like I think I'm, and I'm going back and forth between middle America and Omaha and Chicago right now for this new gig. And it's like the people I talk, like, that's, they, they, they're, they're curious. Everyone is, is so ready I think to see, because the other thing is, is that 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 capital insurrection was kind of the levy breaking on some of those. Most people are tired of this bullshit, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like most people are sick of it. Yeah. Like they want they want something else. And what I really believe is that the people in this country most naturally equipped to step into this breach and provide some calm and to provide some leadership and to say to to start reaching across the aisle from whatever side they're standing on and say, Hey, let's go get a beer and talk. Let's quit talking shit on Facebook, right? Fuck Facebook, get off it. You know, those are vets because you know, like we've already fought, right? I mean, you know, Dan and I, Dan, we've talked about this when we were both in the national guard and since like, you know, I don't ever need to pick another gun up again. I mean, I will don't, Mm -hmm. don't, don't threaten it, you know, like don't, don't start no shit, but I don't ever need to do it again. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I'm secure in, you know, that sort of, I don't want to call it masculinity. That's the wrong word, but I, I, I don't need to prove myself in this, in this, these certain arenas. I don't need, like, you know, I can hear you out. Like I don't need to get super defensive because, you know, you believe in socialized medicine and I believe in privatized medicine or you uh, think there should be a ban on high cap mags. And, you know, I think, but you know, it should only be 20 rounds. I mean, I don't believe any of that shit, but like, you know, like, like we can do that. You know, Jason Crow can be a Democrat from Colorado, you know, 
as a as a as a as a congressional person. And Adam Kinzinger can be a Republican from um, Illinois, and they're both vets. And those guys get those guys get along. Yeah, they disagree. Yeah, yeah they they have some arguments, but that's America, right? Mm, yeah. We're we're designed to disagree. Our government's designed to have friction, and, and that happens every single day. You ever notice how? Um, even, even that one person that you disagree with the most politically, when you're talking face to face, you never seem to want to kill them. But the minute you read something that they wrote on Facebook or Twitter, you want to stab them in the face. Yeah. Yep. Right. I mean, and I, and I think that, and, and I think that people need to see, uh, the non stylized, the non Facebook, the non Fox news or MSNBC veteran, they mm -hmm. need to see who we are. And I, I think that once they see that, I think it starts a conversation. I think that it, it allows, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm just a stupid fucking dreamer when I say this, but I think that it's a way to help contribute to the healing that this country needs Yeah, I after agree. just some of the crazy stuff. And so. I'll, um, we can wrap on this, but I think that, um, obviously like you guys said, I'm, I'm super pumped to have both you guys part of this and the many other you know, men and women that contributed their time to meeting up with me on this road trip. They're going to meet with Dan and I coming up to, to finish up the rest of the stories for this book. But I'm, um, I'm kind of just more like, you know, ha happy where it's going. And, um, I'm like, <laughs> I'm trying to like keep it under wraps, which is hard. I'm like trying to do like behind the scenes stuff as I go on these trips because yeah. it's going to get to a point and I think it's getting there where people are like, I just want to see this thing. Like I want to see where you're yeah. at and it's coming up. Like I guarantee here shortly, we're going to be probably going full ramping it up and showing designs of the mm -hmm. book and all that. But yeah, I just think it's cool to have you along for this journey. And I appreciate you hopping on the podcast and sharing your story, your experiences in the no, military, man. where it's led you in your civilian lifestyle, you know, and, and helping start up a successful clothing company you know, you have such an incredible story and I know that uh, Dan and I are stoked to have you on. Yeah. No, dude, I'm so excited. Yeah. I can't thank you enough, you know, for me to call you a, a friend and a brother. And, you know, I was honored to serve with you when I did, and I'm, I'm even more excited to continue down this mission with you. So, um, you know, more, more great things to come with these three. Yeah. Cheers boys. Oh, yeah. Thanks Tom. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks guys.